The Rules Committee will come to order. The Rules Committee will come to order. It's unfortunate that we have to be here today, uh, but the actions of the President of the United States make that necessary. President Trump withheld congressionally approved aid to Ukraine, a partner under siege, not to fight corruption, but to extract a personal political favor. President Trump refused to meet with Ukraine's president in the White House until he completed this scheme. All the while, leaders in Russia, the very nation holding a large part of Ukraine hostage, the very nation that interfered with our elections in 2016, had yet another meeting in the Oval Office just last week. These are not my opinions. These are uncontested facts. We've listened to the hearings. We've read the transcripts. And it's clear that this president acted in a way that not only violates the public trust, he jeopardized our national security, and he undermined our democracy. He acted in a way that rises to the level of impeachment. That is why we are considering HRES 755 today, a resolution impeaching Donald John Trump, President of the United States, for high crimes and misdemeanors. Congress has no other choice but to act with urgency you know, when I think back to the founders of this nation, they were particularly concerned about foreign interference in our elections. They understood that allowing outside forces to decide American campaigns would cause the fundamentals of our democracy to crumble. But the evidence shows that is exactly what President Trump did. Not only allowed, but solicited foreign interference, all to help him win his reelection campaign. What shocks me, quite frankly, about so many of my Republican friends is their inability to acknowledge that President Trump acted improperly. It seems the only Republican members willing to admit the President did something wrong have either already retired or announced plans they intend to retire at the end of this Congress. I get it. It's hard to criticize a President of your own party. But that shouldn't, uh, you know, but that shouldn't matter here. I admired President Clinton when he was President of the United States, and I still do today. But when this House impeached him, which I didn't agree with, I went to the House floor and I said I thought what President Clinton did was wrong. Because moments like this call for more than just reflexive partisanship. They require honesty and they require courage. Are any Republicans today willing to muster the strength to say that what this President did was wrong? Now let me say again what happened here. The President withheld congressionally approved military aid to a country under siege to abstract a personal political favor. He did not do this as a matter of U.S. policy. He did this for his own benefit. That is wrong. And if that is not impeachable conduct, I don't know what is. Now, I've heard some on the other side suggest that this process is about overturning an election. That is absurd. This is about President Trump using his office to try and rig the next election. Now think about that. We like to say that every vote matters, that every vote counts. We learned in grade school about all the people who fought and died for that right. It is a sacred thing. You know, I remember as a middle schooler in 1972, leaving leaflets at the homes of potential voters, urging them to support George McGovern for president. No relation, by the way. Uh, I thought he had a great last name. Uh, and he was dedicated to ending the war in Vietnam and feeding the hungry and helping the poor. I remember 
even to this day, what an honor it was to ask people to support him, even though I was too young to vote myself. And what a privilege it was later in life to ask voters for their support in my own campaigns. Now, I've been part of winning campaigns, and I've been part of losing ones too. People I thought would be great presidents, like Senator McGovern, were never given that chance. Make, make no mistake, I was disappointed, but I accepted it. I would take losing an election any day of the week when the American people render that verdict. But I will never, and I mean I will never be okay if other nations decide our leaders for us. And the President of the United States is rolling out the welcome mat for that kind of foreign interference. To not act would set a dangerous precedent, not just for this president, but for every future president. The evidence is as clear as it is overwhelming. And this administration hasn't handed over a single subpoenaed document to refute it, not one. Now it's up to us to decide whether the United States is still a nation where no one is above the law, or whether America is allowed to become a land run by those who act more like kings or queens, as if the law doesn't apply to them. You know, it's no secret that President Trump has a penchant for cozying up to notorious dictators. He's complimented Vladimir Putin, congratulated Rodrigo Duterte, lauded President Erdogan, fell in love with Kim Jong-un. I can go on and on and on. And maybe the president is jealous that they can do whatever they want. These dictators are the antithesis of what America stands for. And every day we let President Trump act like the law doesn't apply to him, we move a little closer to them. You know, Benjamin Franklin left the Constitutional Convention and said, the founders have created a republic if you can keep it. There are no guarantees. Our system of government will persist only if we fight for it. And the simple question for us is this, are we willing to fight for this democracy? I expect we'll have a lot of debate here today. I hope everyone searches their conscience. To my Republican friends, imagine any Democratic president sitting in the Oval Office, President Obama, President Clinton, any of them. Would your answer here still be the same? No one should be allowed to use the powers of the presidency to undermine our elections or cheat in a campaign, no matter who it is and no matter what their party. We all took an oath not to defend a political party, but to uphold the Constitution of the United States. History is testing us. We can't control what the Senate will do, but each of us can decide whether we pass that test, whether we defend our democracy, and whether we uphold our oath. Today, we'll put a process in place to consider these articles on the House floor. And when I cast my vote in favor, my conscience will be clear. Before I turn to our ranking member, I want to first recognize his leadership on this committee. We take up a lot of contentious matters up here in the Rules Committee, and often we are on different sides of many issues. Uh, but he leads with integrity and he cares deeply about this House. There will be passionate disagreement here today, but I have no doubt we will continue working together in the future and side by side on this committee to better this institution. And let me also state for the record uh, that Chairman Nadler is unable to be here today because of a family medical emergency and we are all keeping him and his family in our thoughts and prayers. Uh, testifying instead today is Congressman Raskin. 
He is not only a valued member of this committee, but also the Judiciary and Oversights Committee. Uh, in addition, Congressman Raskin is a constitutional law professor, so he has a very comprehensive and unique understanding of what we're talking about here today. And I appreciate him stepping in and testifying this morning. I also want to welcome back uh, Ranking Member Collins, a former member of the Rules Committee, uh, someone who I don't often agree with, but uh, someone who I uh, respect uh, nonetheless and uh, appreciate all of his contributions to this institution. Now, having said that, I'm now we'll turn, over to, turn this over to our Ranking Member, Mr. Cole, for any remarks he wishes to make. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Let me begin by uh, reciprocating uh, a personal and professional respect uh, for you and the other members of this committee as well, uh, because I do think very highly of each and every person on this committee, and particularly of you, Mr. Chairman. But this is a day where we're going to disagree and disagree very strongly. It is, uh, as you referenced, Mr. Chairman, a sad day. Sad day for me personally, for the Rules Committee, for the institution of the House, and for the American people. We're meeting today on a rule for considering articles of impeachment against a sitting President of the United States on the floor of the House of Representatives. This is not the result of a fair process and certainly not a bipartisan one. Sadly, the Democrats' impeachment inquiry has been flawed and partisan from day one. So I guess it should come as no surprise that Democrats' preordained outcome is also flawed and partisan. Seven weeks ago, when this committee met to consider a resolution to guide the process for the Democrats' unprecedented impeachment inquiry, I warned that they were treading on shaky ground with their unfair and closed process. Reflecting on how, how things have played out since then reaffirms my earlier judgment that this flawed process was crafted to ensure a partisan, preordained result. Unfortunately, this entire process was tarnished further by the speed with which my Democratic colleagues on the Judiciary and Intelligence Committees have rushed to deliver their predetermined judgment to impeach the President for something, anything, whether there are stones left unturned or whether there is any proof at all. There's no way this can or should be viewed as legitimate, certainly not by Republicans whose minority rights have been trampled on every step on the way, <laughs> and certainly not by the American people observing this disastrous political show scene by scene. As I've said before, unlike any impeachment proceedings in modern history, the partisan process prescribed and pursued by Democrats is truly unprecedented. And it contradicts Speaker Pelosi's own words. Back in March of this year, she said, quote, impeachment is so divisive to the country that unless there's something so compelling and overwhelming and bipartisan, I don't think we should go down that path because it divides the country, unquote. The key word in that quote is bipartisan. Indeed, during the Nixon and Clinton impeachments, the process for even opening the inquiry was considered on a bipartisan basis. Back then, both sides treated the process with the seriousness it deserved, negotiating and finding agreement across the aisle to ensure fairness and due process for all involved in the inquiries. But that's not the case today. Instead, Democrats have pushed forward using a partisan process that limited the president's right to due process, prevented the minority from exercising their rights, and charged ahead toward a vote to impeach the president, whether the evidence is there or not. 
I suppose I shouldn't be surprised by any of this. Democrats in the House have been pushing to impeach President Trump since before he was even sworn in. In December of 2017, when a current Democratic member of the House forced a vote on impeachment, uh, impeachment resolution, 58 Democrats voted then to impeach the President Trump, even without an investigation, without any evidence to point to. And those numbers have only grown since then to the point where the majority is now pushing forward with a final vote on impeachment, heedless of where it takes the country, and regardless of whether they have proven their case. Mr. Chairman, it didn't have to be this way. When, uh, it, we, when she became entrusted uh, with the gavel over the House, this Congress, Speaker Pelosi assured us all that she would not move forward with impeachment unless it was bipartisan and unless there was a clear consensus in the country. Neither of those two commissions are present here. Indeed, the latest real clear politics average of polls on impeachment shows the country evenly split, with 46.5% of Americans in favor of impeachment and 46.5% against. That is hardly what I would call a national consensus in favor of impeaching President Trump. When half of Americans are telling you that what you're doing is wrong, you should listen. I think this is especially the case given how close we are to the next election. In 11 months, the American people are going to vote on the next president of the United States. Why then are we plunging the country into this kind of turmoil and this kind of trauma now, when the voters themselves will resolve the matter one way or another less than a year from today? All it does achieve is make the political polarization and divisions in our country even worse. That makes no sense to me. Though we may be moving forward with a vote, I certainly do not believe the majority has proven its case or convinced the American people that the weeks of wasted time was worth it. And personally, I believe the articles themselves are unwarranted. The majority is seeking to remove the president over something that didn't happen, the alleged quid pro quo with the president of Ukraine. Never mind that the foreign aid went to the Ukraine as it was supposed to, and never mind that no investigations were required uh, for the Ukraine to get the aid. And never mind that the two participants in the famous conversation, President Trump and President Zelensky, said nothing inappropriate happened. According to the majority, however, a quid pro quo that never existed is an appropriate basis for removing the president from office. And yet, even though the majority has not proven its case, and even though there's no basis for impeachment, they're still moving forward today. What I cannot discern is a legitimate reason why. Why the majority is moving forward when the process is so partisan. Why they are moving forward when the American people are not with them. Why they are moving forward when they haven't proven their case. And why they are moving forward when there is no basis for impeachment. Why? Why put the country through all this? It makes even less sense to me when we consider the realities of the United States Senate. We already know that the votes to convict and remove the president uh, from office simply aren't there. Bluntly put, this is a matter that Congress as a whole cannot resolve on its own. Yet the majority is plunging forward regardless of the needless drama or the damage to the institution and to the country knowing full well that at the end of the day, the president will remain in office. And for what?
scoring political points with their party's base. Again, Mr. Chairman, this does not make any sense to me. We didn't need to go this route. We didn't need to push forward on a partisan impeachment process that had only one possible result. But we are here anyway, regardless of the damage it does to the institution and regardless of how much further it divides the country. As I said at the beginning, Mr. Chairman, this is a sad day for all of us. But it is especially sad for me knowing that this day was inevitable, preordained from the start. No matter what happened, no matter where the investigations led, the Democratic majority in the House of Representatives was pushing since the day they took over to impeach President Trump. The facts don't warrant that, Mr. Chairman, and the process is unworthy of the outcome. The President should not be impeached, and I urge all members, both here in the Rules Committee and tomorrow on the House floor, to vote no. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much. Um, and I appreciate uh, your, your comments. Uh, obviously, we have strong disagreements. Um, and I just, just one technical uh, point uh, I'd like to make. Uh, none of us in this House have uh, had an opportunity to vote on impeachment. Um, uh, the resolution that the gentleman refers to um, uh, uh, was some of us opposed tabling it because we thought it should go to committee um, where it could be appropriately evaluated. And that's what this process has achieved. The relevant committees have done their work, investigated the claims and wrongdoings by the president, and now the Judiciary Committee has recommended articles of impeachment. So the first time anybody in this House will get an opportunity to vote on impeachment will be tomorrow. Uh, having said that, I want to welcome our, both, both of our witnesses. Uh, and Mr. Raskin, uh, we will begin with you. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Good morning, Chairman McGovern. Good morning, Ranking Member Cole. Good morning to... Uh, all of our distinguished colleagues on the House Rules Committee, and good morning to my friend, Mr. Collins. Uh, it is uh, my solemn responsibility this morning to present for your consideration House Resolution 755 and the accompanying House Judiciary Committee report concerning the impeachment of Donald John Trump, President of the United States for high crimes and misdemeanors committed against the people of the United States. I'm appearing, as you said, Mr. Chairman, this morning in place of Chairman Nadler, who could not be with us, I am sure I speak for all the members of both the Judiciary Committee and the Rules Committee in sending strength, love, and prayers to Chairman Nadler's wife, Joyce, and all of our hopes for a speedy recovery. The Judiciary Committee, along with the other committees which investigated President Trump's offenses, the Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, the Committee on Foreign Affairs, and the Committee on Oversight and Reform, bring these articles with a solemn purpose and a heavy heart, but in active faith with the constitutional oaths of office that we have all sworn. The investigating committees conducted 100 hours of deposition testimony with 17 sworn witnesses and 30 hours of public testimony with 12 witnesses. The Judiciary Committee is now in possession of overwhelming evidence that the President of the United States has committed high crimes and misdemeanors, violated his constitutional oath to faithfully execute the office of the President of the United States, and to the best of his ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, and violated his constitutional duty to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. We present two articles of impeachment supported by hundreds of pages of detailed evidence and meticulous analysis. The evidence and analysis lead inescapably to the conclusions embodied in these articles of impeachment. 
First, President Trump has committed the high crime and misdemeanor of abuse of office. He abused the awesome powers of the presidency by using his office to corruptly demand that a foreign government interfere in our American presidential election in order to promote his own political campaign in 2020. He corruptly conditioned the release of $391 million in foreign security assistance that he held back from the Ukrainian government along with a long hope for a White House presidential meeting. <clears throat> he conditioned those on Ukrainian President Zelensky's agreement to go public with two statements. One statement was announcing a criminal investigation into former Vice President Joe Biden, a leading presidential candidate and rival of the president. The other statement was announcing an investigation that would rehabilitate a discredited pro-Russian conspiracy theory by showing that it was Ukraine and not Putin's Russia that tried to disrupt the last American presidential election in 2016. This scheme to corrupt an American presidential election subordinated the democratic sovereignty of the people to the private political ambitions of one man, the president himself. It immediately placed the national security interests of the United States of America at risk, and it continues to embroil the nation and our government in conflict. Second, after this corrupt scheme came to light and numerous public servants with knowledge of key events surfaced to testify in our committee investigations about the president's actions, President Trump directed the wholesale, categorical, and indiscriminate obstruction of this congressional impeachment investigation. He did so by ordering a blockade of administration witnesses, by trying to muzzle and intimidate witnesses who did come forward, and by refusing to produce even a single subpoenaed document. In the history of the Republic, no president other than this one has ever claimed and exercised the unilateral right and power to thwart and defeat a House presidential impeachment inquiry. Yet that would have been the final and unavoidable result of the president's outrageous defiance of Congress had 17 brave witnesses not come forward in the face of the president's threats and testified about the Ukraine shakedown and its scandalous effects on our national security, our democracy, and our constitutional system of government. But make no mistake, while this investigation was saved by the courage and old-fashioned patriotism of witnesses like Ambassador William Taylor, Ambassador Maria Yovanovitch, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, and Dr. Fiona Hill, the president's aggressive and unprecedented resistance to congressional subpoenas for witnesses and documents is blatantly and dangerously unconstitutional. If accepted and normalized now, it will undermine, perhaps for all time, the congressional impeachment power itself, which is the people's last instrument of constitutional self-defense against a sitting president who behaves like a king and tramples the rule of law. By obstructing an impeachment inquiry with impunity, the president will have the power to actively destroy the people's final check on his own corrupt misconduct and abuse of power. The framers insisted that we have impeachment in the Constitution precisely to protect ourselves from a president becoming a tyrant and a despot. And we cannot and we will not allow the impeachment power itself to be destroyed. 
These articles charge that President Trump has engaged in systematic abuse of his powers, obstructed Congress, and realized the worst fears of the framers by subordinating our national security and dragging foreign powers into American politics to corrupt our elections, all for the greater cause of his own personal gain and ambition. Article 1, Section 4 of the Constitution provides that the president shall be impeached for treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. This is the essential check that the people's representatives maintain over the executive branch. As our constitutional expert witnesses testified, the framers sought to capture a broad range of presidential misconduct and wrongdoing through this provision, but the commanding and comprehensive impulse for including the impeachment power in the Constitution was to prevent the president's abuse of power, which the framers saw as the very essence of impeachable conduct. In Federalist Number 65, Hamilton wrote that impeachable offenses are defined by abuse of some public trust. From the Federalist Papers and the records of the Constitutional Convention and the ratifying conventions, we find that the framers feared principally three kinds of betrayal of office by abuse of power. Abuse of power by exploiting public office for private, political, or financial gain, number one. Number two, abuse of power by betraying the national interest and the public trust through entanglement with foreign governments. And number three, abuse of power by corrupting democratic elections and denying the people proper agency through self-government. According to the framers, any one of these violations of the public trust would be enough to justify presidential impeachment for abuse of power. However, President Trump's conduct has realized all three of the framers' worst fears of presidential abuse of power. Never before in American history has an impeachment investigation crystallized in findings of conduct that implicate all of the major reasons that the framers built impeachment into our Constitution. Mr. Chairman, the conduct we set before you today is not some kind of surprising aberration or deviation in the president's behavior for which he is remorseful. On the contrary, the president is completely unrepentant and defiantly declares his behavior here perfect, indeed absolutely perfect. He says that Article 2 of the Constitution gives him the power to do whatever he wants, conveniently forgetting Article 2, Section 4, which gives us the power to check his misconduct with the instrument of impeachment. We believe this conduct is impeachable and should never take place again under our constitutional system. He believes his conduct is perfect and we know, therefore, that it will take place again and again. Indeed, our report points out that this pattern of showing spectacular disrespect for the rule of law by inviting and welcoming foreign powers into our elections was in plain view in the 2016 presidential election. America remembers when then-candidate Donald Trump uttered the imperishably infamous words, Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. And just five hours later, Russian agents moved to hack his political opponent's computers as part of their continuing effort to upend the 2016 presidential campaign. As identified by the Justice Department, the Trump campaign had more than 100 contacts with Russian operatives over the course of that campaign, and none of them were reported by the Trump campaign to law enforcement or national security agencies. Moreover, 
during the special counsel investigation into the sweeping and systematic Russian campaign to subvert our election, President Trump engaged in another systematic campaign of obstruction of the investigative process to obscure his own involvement. Mr. President, Mr. Chairman, we present you not just with high crimes and misdemeanors, but a constitutional crime in progress up to this very minute. Mayor Giuliani, the president's private lawyer, fresh from his overseas travel, looking to rehabilitate once again the discredited conspiracy theories at the heart of the president's defense, admitted that he participated directly in the smear campaign to oust Ambassador Yovanovitch from her job. According to the New Yorker magazine, Giuliani said, I believe that I needed Yovanovitch out of the way. She was going to make the investigations difficult for everybody. And here, of course, Mr. Giuliani refers to the president's sought-after investigations into Joe Biden and the remnants of the discredited conspiracy theory pushed by Russia as propaganda that it was Ukraine and not Russia that interfered in the 2016 American presidential election. Given that an unrepentant president considers his behavior perfect, given that he thinks the Constitution empowers him to do whatever he wants, given that he and his team are still awaiting President Zelensky's statement about investigating Joe Biden, given that he has already invited China to perform an investigation of its own. We can only ask what the 2020 election will be like, or indeed, what any future election in America will be like if we just let this misconduct go and authorize and license presidents to coerce, cajole, pressure, and entice foreign powers to enter our election campaigns on behalf of the president. Who will be invited in next? The president's continuing course of conduct constitutes a clear and present danger to democracy in America. We cannot allow this misconduct to pass. It would be a sellout of our constitution, our foreign policy, our national security, and our democracy. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back. Thank you very much, Mr. Collins. Welcome back to the Rules Committee. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. It's good to see you. And uh, Mr. Cole, as well, members who I've spent many hours in this room with. You know, the chairman made a statement about uh, my friend here, Mr. Raskin, and he is a fine attorney, and, and it's been amazing to me um, throughout this year how the Judiciary Committee has sidelined fine attorneys like himself into not asking questions and to not being a part of the process. It's been really interesting to watch because he's actually a, a good one. And as you said, he's a good constitutional attorney. I'm not a constitutional attorney. I'm a pastor and an attorney from North Georgia. But I believe that you take another look at this and you can apply constitutional lenses. We all sit through those classes. But it's a common sense lens. It's a common sense lens. Mr. Cole made a, question, a comment when he, in his opening statements. He says, you said, Mr. Cole, it said it doesn't make sense. Yeah, it does. It makes perfect sense. Look at the pattern. You know, the, the only thing that is, that is uh, a clear and present danger right now in this room is the pattern of attack and abuse of rules and, uh, and decisions to get at this president that started over three years ago, really the night he was elected. And, it, and, and I said the other day in the committee hearing, I talked about, you know, the, having the means and the motive and the opportunity. The opportunity for this day occurred last November when we lost the majority. It occurred. Because they'd already talked about it for, for years in prior, and so now we just bring it forward, and we've tried a lot of different things to get there. 
And we'll talk about that, I'm sure, as, as the time goes on today. And look, we can have plenty of time to talk about the, the articles and, and the very vague articles that we did. It's, it's pretty interesting if you read the report from the majority. There's a lot of discussion about crimes, but they couldn't find it in themselves to charge one. Again, common sense. Articles, and when you think about impeachment, you're thinking about impeaching a president in particular for crimes. You're thinking about it, you're, you're sitting it down. It was, it was, and this majority has tried so hard to be like Clinton and Nixon and failed so miserably. But every time we try, we try once again, except the one thing, when it came down to the very end, the one thing they couldn't do is actually find a crime. They talk about it a bunch. If you read, their, read the majority's report, it is well written. It is some of the best work you'll see, frankly, in some ways of fictional accounts of what this actually is, but it actually talks about it. That the problem here is a majority bent on finding something for this president. So, Mr. Cole, it's not a surprise. In fact, it's a sad day, for not only for the Rules Committee, but for the Judiciary Committee. You know, it's telling that the articles of impeachment, to show you how partisan this is, and really the concerning part that I see, and Mr. McGovern is a friend, and we disagree, and you, you're exactly right, we disagree probably on a lot of things. Is this glass half full happening? And, and that's fine, that's what we're supposed to do. That's what our voters send us here for. But to find ways to actually work, well, we have worked together. The question I have here, though, is if this was, as, your, as the speaker said, to suppose it should be overwhelming, bipartisan, and, and the American people understand it, then why are we in the Rules Committee today? When it was with Clinton, it was a UC straight to the floor. It wasn't, it didn't have to come to the Rules Committee because both sides could see there was something needed to be discussed, and that's not true here. And so we're having to bring it up here to the Rules Committee, a place that I have uh, spent many uh, hours and many of us in this uh, group have discussed many things, but this should not be one of them. You know, it's interesting that I hear a lot today, and I've heard already from Mr. Raskin and from the, from the chairman as well, the discussion of the founders. And it's interesting, we, we cherry-pick the founders, and that's okay, that's what you know, partisans do. When you're in a partisan impeachment, you cherry-pick the founders. If you like this partisan work, you do that one. If you like the other partisan. But the one that's not mentioned is the very thing that we're here for. And that was found, I believe it was in uh, Federalist, uh, I think it was 65, it was, it was Hamilton. When he said this, he said, the founders warned, warned against a vague open-ended charge because it could be applied in a partisan fashion by the majority of the House of Representatives against an op opposition president. Alexander Hamilton called partisan impeachment regulated by more of the comparative strength of parties than the real demonstration of innocence or guilt, the greatest danger. And additionally, the founders explicitly excluded the term maladministration from the impeachment clause because they did not want the subject presidents to the whims of Congress, their words. James Madison said, so vague a term will be the equivalent to a tenure during the, ple during the pleasure of the Senate. And I would say it would be a tenure to the pleasure of this House. When we understand what's going on here, when we look at the, the, the discussions here, there are many things that I want to talk about, but the first I want to do is... When we talk about how we get to a certain place, proper process leads to proper results, and we've not had any of that in this process. I have always said, and I've said it many times uh, in our discussions uh, lately, is that this is all about a clock and a calendar. It has been for a while. Since January, when we were sworn in, it's about a clock and a calendar. Why do I say that? Because we had to get to it by the end of the year, because if we went into the next year, it would be really too close, especially from the House's perspective, to the elections that they're trying to interfere with. And yes, they're trying to interfere with elections, the 2020 election, by actually beginning this process and been going forward. Now, the conduct is not conducted to respect the American people. The clock and the calendar know no masters. 
except themselves. You see, our committee held its first hearing on December 4th, literally the day after Schiff publicly released his report. In the first minutes of the hearing, Mr. Sensenbrenner furnished the chairman with our demand for a minority day of hearings. The chairman also set a deadline of December 6th for Republicans and the president to request additional witnesses. But it wasn't until Saturday, the day after the deadline, that Chairman Schiff transmitted 8,000 pages of material to the Judiciary Committee. And we still haven't gotten everything, not that it matters to the majority. For, for institutionalists, this should bother you. You can, you can still go ahead and vote for your yes tomorrow and vote for yes today and do that, but it should matter for this institution that while I was in Georgia, I received a call from my staff saying they've just released 8,000 documents, some drives, some of which were going to be kept in a secure holding. And when I asked the chairman about these documents, where are they going to be used? He said, well, we're not going to read them either. We're not going to have a chance to go through them. We're just going to go ahead with what we're doing. That was from my chairman, who I respect greatly. We've done a lot of things together, but it has been very difficult. When in a hearing of this magnitude, how can anyone, Republican or Democrat, actually go back and look at their constituents in the face and say, we looked at all the evidence. I looked at everything and I came to this conclusion. No, we cherry-picked the evidence and we only used what we wanted to do because that material, which, by the way, has still not all been released, there's the Inspector General IG report that is still transparent, has not been released. Now, whether it's good or bad is irrelevant. But when you're talking about impeaching a president, shouldn't the underlying evidence sent to Judiciary Committee actually matter Again, it doesn't take constitutional experts coming in and telling us about it. It takes common sense to know that you don't impeach somebody without at least making all the evidence proper. But you know, that's what happens when you're to the tyranny of a clock and a calendar. When you're the tyranny of a clock and a calendar, nothing else matters. It's like what's going to happen here in the holidays is you're getting close to that day and you're supposed to give that gift. Nothing else matters. You just got to go get it. And it's the last minute. If you don't have anything, Mr. Ace, I bet you've done this. You go out and you just buy the first thing you get. And this is what was happening. The clock was running out, so they found a phone call they didn't like. They didn't like this administration. They didn't like what the president did. They tried to make up claims of that there was pressure and all these other things that they've so outlined in the report. But at the end of the day, it's simply last-minute Christmas shopping. They ran and found something. They said, we can do it, but no crimes. None in the articles. Abuse of power in which any member can make up anything they want to and call it an abuse of power. But in the report, they document bribery and extortion and all these other things, which they can't put into the articles. And then the obstruction of justice, again, is sort of interesting. When I just read, Chairman Schiff transferred on a Saturday 8,000 pages of what we were supposed to be working at for the next hearing. We submitted our list of witnesses to Nadler the day before, Mr. Nadler, before the, the Schiff sent us, had, we submitted it before Schiff had sent us any more evidence. Last Monday, we had a hearing so Schiff's staff and Nadler's consultants could tell us that the president needs to be impeached. Again, nothing from... Chairman Schiff, who had made the reference to himself being like Ken Starr, but for those in this room who have at least opened a history book, Ken Starr actually came and testified and took questions from everyone, including the White House counsel. On Monday, the chairman rejected our, all of our witnesses out of hand. And on Tuesday, the morning after the presentation of articles were unveiled. Remember, think about this. No factual-based witnesses. We had a bunch of law professors, one for us. By the way, I did ask for another one. Didn't get it. No reasoning. We just went back, and we were in impeachment hearings, and we went back to the normal 3-1 ratio. I asked for one more and basically didn't get it. It was an interesting conversation between the chairman and I. Didn't get it. Then we came in and got our witness list, summarily dismissed. We get information dumped to us 
in the middle of, of what we're supposed to be doing, right before we're having to have hearings, before we had to, after the fact, we had to turn on our witness list. <laughs> Judge, I don't think this would fly in any regular normal court proceeding, because I know this is not, so before anybody wants to tweet or say anything, we're not in a court, I know that. We're in a kangaroo court, it feels like, in this place, because all of this is backwards. What's up is down and down is up. We're more Alice in Wonderland than we are House of Representatives. Because whether you agree that he needs to be impeached or not, do you not think there needs to be a modicum of process and rights? All of this is true. The rules completely aside, the minority hearing day, broken. Access to committee records rule, broken. Due process rights for the accused in impeachment, completely out the window. Rules for the Corman debate, well, we've seen that broken even on the House floor. H. Red 660, the authorization for this whole thing, the chairman could have used it to run a fair process. Unfortunately, we didn't. The problem comes down today is there are several things that I'm going to leave you with, Mr. Chairman. And this is it. After all that has been said, all that's been talked about, and all that's within that wonderfully written report, there's four facts that will never change. Both the President and Mr. Zelensky say there was no pressure. The call transcript shows no conditionality in aid and an investigation. By the way, Mr. Sondland, their key witness, the only thing they ever quote is his opening statement. They don't like to quote when he actually was questioned when he said, well, yeah, I presume that. And then when he talked about Mr. Yarmuk, Mr. Yarmuk said, we didn't have any conversation about conditionality of aid. That was just come out just the other day. I'm not sure where we're getting this, but it definitely wasn't a call transcript. Ukrainians were not aware the aid was withheld even when the, when the president spoke, and Ukrainians did not open investigations, didn't get a meeting, and still got their aid. But what did we see last week and over the past two weeks? We saw Mr. Zelensky, President Zelensky, pillared in our committee. He's either a liar, a pathological liar, according to the majority, or he is so weak he shouldn't be governing that country. That's tragic. We actually did that to this sitting leader, world leader in our committee. These are the kind of things that bother many of us. But also, I know this is also on a clock and a calendar, too. We'll have a few hours here. We'll talk about it. But I will remind my majority friends, and I do consider you friends, the clock and the calendar are terrible masters and they lead to awful results. And yes, there will be a day of reckoning. The calendar and the clock will continue. But what you do here and how we have trashed the process in getting here will live on, and it will affect everything that we've come for. And so whatever you may gain will be short-lived because the clock and the calendar also recognize common sense, which has not been used in this proceeding. And with that, Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Thank you very much. Thank, I want to thank both of you for your opening statements. Um, uh, Mr. Collins, you, you raised the issue of why we're here in the Rules Committee today. Um, and uh, let me just state for the record that, uh, as you know, the Constitution gives the House the sole power of impeachment and the power to determine its own rules. Um, you know, when President Nixon, uh, during uh, the time he was going to be impeached, uh, the chairman of the Rules Committee, Chairman Madden, actually spoke on the House floor and announced that there would be a rule governing how that proceeding would move forward. When the Clinton articles of impeachment uh, were brought forward, there was a unanimous consent request uh, uh, to kind of govern how we conducted ourselves. And um, I'm not sure how likely it, it would be that we would get a unanimous consent request. I'd like to ask unanimous consent without objection to enter into a record a, a letter that was sent to the chairman of the Judiciary Committee signed by, I think, 70 Republican members, including the Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader, and. <laughs> Uh, basically, and let me read the, the key line here, is we will avail ourselves of every parliamentary tool available to us in committee and on the House floor to highlight your inaction translated 
means to try to delay and to make this process uh, as impossible uh, as it can be made. Uh, I'm not sure, uh, in light of this letter, that we could get a unanimous consent request with regard to these proceedings to break for a cup of coffee, never mind, um, you know, determine uh, the rules of engagement. So I, I point that out. Uh, in terms of process, uh, I just want to, again, state for the record, because I think it's important, um, that I think the House is engaged in a fair impeachment inquiry process. Uh, Democrats and Republicans have had equal opportunity to participate in the months-long uh, impeachment inquiry. Members of both parties have been involved at every stage in this process, from sitting in and asking questions in closed-door depositions to questioning witnesses in open hearings. Uh, the committees uh, took more than 100 hours of deposition testimony from 17 witnesses, held seven public hearings, which included Republican-requested witnesses. They produced a 300-page public report that laid out their findings and evidence. The Judiciary Committee then took that report and conducted two public hearings evaluating the evidence and legal standard for impeachment before reporting the two articles uh, that we are dealing with here today. And I should also point out that President Trump was provided an opportunity to participate in the Judiciary Committee's review of the evidence presented against him, as President Clinton was during um, his impeachment inquiry. President Trump chose not to participate. President Trump, to date, has not provided any exculpatory evidence, but instead has blocked numerous witnesses from testifying uh, about his actions. Uh, and so um, I just thought it was important to point that out. Mr. Mr. Raskin, I, I saw you scribbling furiously while Mr. Uh, Collins was testifying. I don't know whether there is something that you wanted to respond to. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. You know, my friend Mr. Collins speaks very fast, so it's hard to keep up with everything that he's saying. Um, but it, a couple of things to... <laughs> that, that's all right. I'm, I, I'm from Massachusetts, and people say the same thing about my accent, so... I mean, I'll tell you about anything, but today, you guys need to give me credit. That was as slow I, as you've ever heard. I give you credit that you were making an effort at the beginning, and so was I, so... They accused me of the same. Um, let, let, let me, let me he, he raises some really important points, and I, I'd love the chance to, to briefly address them. Um, the, one thing that we've been hearing is that we didn't charge crimes. And um, in some sense, um, that just uh, duplicates a basic confusion that people have about what the process is. Uh, we are not criminal prosecutors prosecuting a criminal defendant in court to send to jail. That's not what we're doing. We're members of Congress who are working to protect the country against a president who's committing high crimes and misdemeanors, that is, constitutional offenses against the people of the country. Now, lots of the conduct that we plead in our specific articles alleging abuse of power and obstruction of Congress themselves could become part of criminal indictments later on. But uh, it's been a curious thing for me to hear our colleagues across the aisle repeatedly make this point and kind of spread this confusion that there are not crimes in there when they were the very first ones to be saying and continue to say the Department of Justice cannot prosecute the president. The president may not be indicted. The president may not be prosecuted while he's in office. That's the position they take. They then cannot turn around and say, oh, and you can't impeach him because you haven't charged him with any crimes and prosecuted him and indicted him. You see, heads I win, tails you lose is the essence of that argument. And of course, if you go back to the, the Richard Nixon case, we didn't have to see that Richard Nixon had been convicted of burglary in the District of Columbia by ordering the break-in to the Watergate Hotel before he, was accused, before he was charged with abuse of power as a high crime and misdemeanor. That's exactly what we're charging 
President Trump with here, we don't have to first go out and prove that he committed bribery or committed uh, honest services fraud or committed extortion, all things that he really could be prosecuted for later. We simply have to allege the, the course of constitutional criminal conduct he was engaged in. And so I think that we can set that one aside. Um, a second thing that, um, that my friend said was that there were no fact witnesses, um, that, uh, that this was based on the report that was delivered to us by the House Committee on Intelligence. And of course, that's a play on words too. There were 17 fact witnesses um, who appeared before the House Committee on Intelligence, the House Oversight Committee, and the House Foreign Affairs <coughs> Committee. The way that we structured this impeachment process, which is completely our prerogative under Article 1, Section 2, Clause 5, as you said, uh, Mr. Chairman, is to have the fact investigation into this affair, which involved foreign governments and ambassadors and so on, in the Intelligence Committee, then to have them bring the facts in a comprehensive report to the House Judiciary Committee, which would then make the decision about the law. Do all of these events rise to what we think is uh, impeachable conduct? And of course, uh, we did. So there are lots of fact witnesses. The fact, uh, we, we also had the counsel for the House Intelligence Committee come into deliver the report and defend the report. And all of my friends on the other side of the aisle had the chance uh, to question, as we had the chance to question. When you say there were no fact witnesses, that's also a perfect description of what took place during the Bill Clinton impeachment. Because all of that took place as part of uh, the uh, independent counsel investigation by Kenneth Starr. There were closed door secret depositions taking place there. Then Kenneth Starr came to deliver the report, and remember all the boxes of material they brought over in a U-Haul truck, and gave it to the House Judiciary Committee. That was the end of it. Monica Lewinsky didn't testify before the House Judiciary Committee. There were not witnesses who had been there who were brought before the House Judiciary Committee. So we're following the exact same pattern, I think, that took place there, except that it was the House of Representatives here which did its own fact investigation through this assortment of committees. Uh, finally, um, the, um, well, the, uh, let me just say a word about the fairness of the process. And, uh, you know, um, we, we all know what they teach you in law school, which is if uh, the facts are against you, you pound the law. The laws are against you, you pound the facts. If the law and the facts are against you, you talk about process and you pound the table. And I'm afraid I've seen a little bit of that in the... Uh, performance of our colleagues here. And I don't blame them because they're dealing with the hand that they were dealt. We have 17 fact witnesses and all of their depositions and all their testimony was published, <coughs> all part of the report. Everybody, uh, everybody can find it. And all of their testimony is essentially unrefuted and uncontradicted. It tells one story, which is the President of the United States conducted a shakedown of a foreign power. He used $391 million that we in Congress had voted for a besieged, struggling democracy, Ukraine, to defend itself against Russian invasion and attack, to coerce that, the president of that foreign government, President Zelensky, to get involved in our election campaign. What did he want him to do? Well, he wanted President Zelensky to make an announcement on television that Joe Biden was being investigated. Now, what does that have to do with the foreign policy of the United States? What does it have to do with what Congress voted for? 
What does it have to do with any legitimate interest of the U.S. government? Mm -hmm. But the other thing that he wanted President Zelensky to do was to rehabilitate the completely discredited conspiracy theory that it was Ukraine and not Russia that had interfered in our election. Our entire intelligence community, the NSA, the CIA, the FBI, the Senate Committee on Intelligence issued a report about this. All of them say the same thing, which is that it was Russia that conducted what the Department of Justice called a sweeping and systematic campaign against our election in 2016. You remember, Mr. Chairman, they injected propaganda into our polity through social media, Facebook and Twitter and so on. They directly conducted cyber invasion and attack and espionage against the Democratic National Committee, the DCCC, Hillary Clinton's headquarters. And they directly tried to get into our state boards of elections. Not two or three, all 50 of them they tried to get into. That's what Russia did. And now suddenly we have the President of the United States telling uh, President Zelensky that if he wants the $391 million that we voted for him, and that he's been certified for by the Department of Defense and the Department of State, clearing every anti-corruption screen that had been put in place and called for by Congress. If he wants the money, and if he wants the White House meeting that he desperately wanted to show that America was on Ukraine's side and not Russia's side, if he wanted to get that stuff, he had to come and get involved in our presidential campaign, and he had to rehabilitate this discredited story about 2016. Yield back. Well, um, thank you. Um, you know, I, I think I've been listening to some of the commentary and the news from some of the pundits, and sometimes I, I think people need a lesson in constitutional law. That's why it's great that you're here. I mean, let, me, let me ask you a basic question, because I think sometimes people don't understand this. Why is impeachment in the Constitution? Oh, that's a great question. And uh, Mr. Collins uh, uh, invoked indirectly uh, my favorite American revolutionary, Tom Paine, who, of course, wrote Common Sense and The Age of Reason. And he said, you can't have one without the other. In other words, you need the common sense of the people, and you need people to be conducting things according to reason, rationality, facts, empiricism, science. But why did Paine come all the way over here to participate in the American Revolution, which was not foreordained to win in any way? Because America was the first nation in history born out of a revolutionary struggle against monarchy against the idea that you could have hereditary rule. Paine said a hereditary, a hereditary ruler is as ridiculous as a hereditary mathematician or a hereditary artist, right? He said the people have got to decide on their own leaders. Now, impeachment is an instrument that our founders put into the Constitution informed by the British experience. There was impeachment that Parliament had, but it wasn't against the king. It was only against royal ministers. Why? Because of the British doctrine, the king can do no wrong. Right? That's kind of like, the king can do whatever he wants. The king can do no wrong, and therefore the king couldn't be impeached. But our founders insisted that impeachment be in there, not just for other civil officers who mm -hmm. might commit high crimes and misdemeanors against the people, but against the president himself. And of course, the president in the Domestic Emoluments Clause is limited to a fixed salary in office, which can be neither increased nor decreased by Congress, and he can't receive any other emoluments from the government itself, any, any other payments. The president is effectively an employee of the American people. That's the way he's designed. He's not above the people. He's a servant of the people like all of us are. And the president's core job is what? To take care that the laws are faithfully executed. 
And if he doesn't faithfully execute the laws, if he thwarts the laws, if he tramples the laws, and he commits crimes against the American people, then we're not going to send him to prison. He's not going to go to jail for one day, but he needs to be removed in order to protect democracy. And for the record, why is abuse of power an impeachable offense? Well, abuse of power is the essential impeachment offense. That's why it's in there. What, it, what it's about is elevating the personal interests and ambitions of the president above the common good, above the rule of law, and above the Constitution. And so the, the founders didn't want a president who was going to behave like a king. We'd seen enough of that. We wanted a president who was going to implement the laws, go out and you know, implement the Affordable Care Act and implement the environmental law. So that's your job. You know, that, that's what you're supposed to be doing. And, and so we've seen evidence that the president decided to withhold from Ukraine important official acts, uh, the White House visit, military aid, in order to pressure Ukraine to announce investigations of Vice President Biden and the 2016 elections. Why does that constitute an impeachable offense? Um, so, um, well, it basically implicates every single one of the concerns that were raised by the founders at the Constitutional Convention. One, it places the personal political agenda and ambitions of the president over enforcing the laws and enforcing the rule of law. Two, it drags foreign powers into our election. That was something that the framers were terrified about. There was a, uh, a great exchange between uh, Adams and Jefferson about just this issue, that there would be constant foreign intrigue and influence, attempts to come and influence because we would be an open democracy, and so people would try to exploit our openness by getting involved in our elections with their foreign government concerns, which is why the president had to have complete undivided loyalty to the American people and to the American Constitution and not get involved with foreign governments, not drag foreign governments into our affairs. So basically, you have everything the framers were concerned about tied up into one bundle here, which is uh, involving foreign governments in our elections, placing uh, the, the president's interests uh, over, all of, over everything else, and then essentially uh, threatening the rule of the people in democracy. And, and, and where do you draw the line between a legitimate use of presidential power and an abuse of power? I mean, and, and why is it significant that President Trump acted for his personal political advantage and not for the furtherance of any valid national policy objective? Well, that's a great question because our colleagues have shrewdly zeroed in on the fact uh, that some of the witnesses, including uh, Ambassador Sondland, said, well, of course there was a quid pro quo. The president was not going to release the, uh, the aid. He was not going to have the meeting until he got what he wanted in terms of political interference. And then even the president's White House chief of staff said, yes, of course there was a quid pro quo. I'm not quoting directly, so I don't have the exact words. But he was saying, yes, this is, this is the way we proceed. Get used to it. OK. And our colleagues have said, well, there's always quid pro quos tied up in foreign policy. In other words, it's legit to say to a foreign government, um, we will give you this aid if you comply that the aid is all being used in the proper way. We will give you this assistance if you attend these conferences and meetings with us to make sure that the assistance is being used properly and so on. There's nothing wrong with that. But look at what happened here. This was, this was an arrangement where the president conditioned all of this foreign assistance that we had sent, $200 million to the Department of Defense, $191 million to the Department of State to help Ukraine defend itself against Russia. Um, and the president said, but, I, uh, but what he was holding out for was 
the interference of the Ukrainian president in our election mm -hmm. to harm his political opponent. And I think everyone can recognize that is not the normal kind of push and pull and arrangements that nations make for each other. Why? Because the president privileged his own political interests, and that's why it was all done uh, secretly. Uh, luckily, there were witnesses who were willing to come forward and to explain what happened. And Mr. Collins, I'll ask you and Mr. Eskin the, the same question. I mean, was the president's call with President Zelensky perfect, as the uh, president has said? And was it appropriate for him to ask another country to investigate an American citizen? I find there was nothing I've said this before. There's nothing wrong with the call. And then when you look at it, and again, I'm frankly, the last... The problem we're having right now is, is exactly the last 15 minutes of this. Great oratory on a lot of things that mean nothing to this actual impeachment. I mean, it, it, we get down to the bottom line here, and, and, and I'm just leaving it at that. Let him answer that question. I'll get back to it later because everything that's been thrown out here is exactly what the problem we've had in, in the discussion. And this idea of throwing law in fact, we've disproven the facts. We've talked about the law. The law wasn't broken. They didn't put it in the, the Constitution. So I'm not, I can yell on both of them. I can talk about both of them. The problem we have here is, is this is the very problem we have, and I'll just address one thing before I let it back, or, or if you want me to switch right now, I will. No, I mean, that's okay. fine. Mr. I'll give it to him. I mean, yeah, oh, that's fine. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at, the, you know, the president and the transcripts. I would like you to do us a favor, though. I mean, I, do you think it was a perfect call? I well, mean, Lieutenant uh, Colonel Vinman actually said it was perfectly okay for the president to ask for a political uh, call, and I can actually say it was in his and testimony. You, yeah. And do you think it's so appropriate? He for said, Lieutenant Colonel Vinman said, would it ever be, it was asked, would it ever be U.S. policy in your experience to ask a foreign leader to open a political investigation? He replied, certainly. The president is well within his right to do that. I mean, do you think it's right for the president to ask a foreign government to investigate a U.S. citizen like that? No, I think it's absolutely wrong. And, you know, one of the interesting things about the hearings, of course, was that, that every single, uh, I think every single member of Congress who has at least endorsed the impeachment inquiry has said that it's completely wrong for uh, the U.S. president to use any of the means at his disposal to drag foreign governments into our election. And we were unable to get our colleagues on the Judiciary Committee to weigh in on that, saying, let's assume that you think, let's stipulate you think that the president did nothing wrong here. Do you think it's wrong for the President of the United States to get foreign powers involved in an election? And we couldn't get an answer. I reissued the invitation to Mr. Collins because I, I believe that in his heart he thinks that's wrong. And I certainly would not th want that to become the pattern for all future presidencies. I think the interesting thing here, Mr. Chairman, if I could, I, would, I don't want this to become the pattern for future impeachments. I think this is the problem I have. And, and, and the understanding here is, I guess it's okay, though, to uh, get involved in a, in a 2016 election when you pay a third party to go uh, pay for a dossier. I mean, these are the kind of things that we can talk about. But the interesting issue that is just discussed here is exactly where we are right now in a question and a comment. Because the, the, what Mr. Raskin just brought up is an interesting point. So is it okay if you're running for president that you can't be investigated, even if you did something overseas? So if you were running for president and you did something overseas, it would be, a, it would be off limits, according to Mr. Askin's argument, for the United States government to investigate that. That's the argument he just set up. I think you need to be very careful with that argument. Uh, I appreciate I, I, I guess, the, the, again, I mentioned this in my opening statement, the frustrating thing is that it's hard. I mean, I would seem so obvious to so many of us about inappropriate behavior, we can't even get. I mean, I, I look at, uh, you know, uh, our, our former colleague, Charlie Dent. Uh, says he spoke with Republicans who were absolutely disgusted and exhausted by the president's behavior. Another former Republican colleague of ours, David Jolly, said we've witnessed, quote, an impeachable moment. Uh, former Republican Congressman Reed Ribble of Wisconsin said clearly there was some type of quid pro quo. 
When asked if he believes the testimony presented warrants impeachment, he said, I do. Former South Carolina Republican Bob Inglis, who served on the Judiciary Committee during the Clinton uh, impeachment, said last month in a tweet, without a doubt, if Barack Obama had done the things revealed in the testimony in the, in the current inquiry, we Republicans would have impeached him. Joe Scarborough, a former Republican congressman for Florida, said, every Republican knows that Donald Trump was asking for dirt on Joe Biden in exchange for releasing military funds. I mean, I, 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 I get, well, let's, let's go on to, um, I don't know, do you want to respond, Mr. Raskin? Sure, I'd be delighted to. But one thing, I, I've just passed a note saying I may have gotten the numbers wrong. The Department of Defense uh, had a $250 million um, appropriation for the purposes of aiding Ukraine, and the state had $141 million. I may have misspoken and said $200 okay. million. Um, but, but, you know, as to that point, um, I, again, I, I feel for my friends because I think they're put into a situation, put into a box, so to speak, which was what uh, uh, President uh, Trump was quoted as saying about what he wanted to do with President Zelensky. He wanted him in a, a box about these statements. But I think they're put into something of a corner here because the president has declared his conduct perfect, absolutely perfect, and he can do whatever he wants. And so they are unable to say, to make the case that I would make, as if, I, if I were trying to defend the president, I would say, okay, that was totally wrong and off limits but it's not impeachable for X, Y, and Z reasons. But they're not allowing anybody that space to say it. They must go with the president's assertion that this was categorically correct. There was nothing wrong with it. It was perfectly right. And, you know, he quoted legal scholars. He didn't name them, right. but he invoked legal scholars who told him that the call was perfect as well. And I, I, I kind of want to move my question along here a little bit. So uh, uh, let, me, let me ask you on the issue of obstruction of Congress. Why is obstruction of Congress an impeachable offense? Well, look, and this is something um, Mr. Collins made a really important point, which is that we've got to think about this in institutional terms, okay? And he rightly calls us to redouble our commitment to fairness in the process. I've seen lots of fairness in this process. I've seen the, in, in the closed-door depositions, I saw the Democratic Council get an hour. I saw the Republican Council get an hour. I saw the Democratic members get to question. I saw the Republican members get to question. I have seen this committee bend over backwards to, to get all of the depositions out as quickly as possible, while the President of the United States is, is stopping at least uh, seven witnesses from coming forward. Uh, it, it may be more than that, but he has blockaded witnesses. The President who says the process is unfair is the one who's stopping everybody from coming to testify and uh, is essentially trying to blockade the whole investigation. Look, why is this essential, Mr. Chairman? It's essential because, for institutional reasons. It's essential for institutional reasons because in the future, it might be a majority Democratic Congress, it might be a majority Republican Congress, but in any event, it's Congress. And one of our jobs is as members of Congress is to make sure that the president does not violate the laws. We're supposed to stand sentinel uh, to make sure that the president will only enforce the laws, take care that the laws are faithfully executed. Well, what happens if you get a president who totally trashes the law, okay? Some of us think we may be there now. Uh, I know some of our colleagues don't believe that, but certainly they can imagine a situation where a president advertises spectacular disrespect and contempt for the law and trashes the law, what is our ultimate check against that? It's going to be impeachment. That's why it's in the Constitution. But now we have a president who, for the first time in American history, says, I am going to try to block the ability of Congress to impeach me by not turning over one single document, by trying to hold back people from testifying, 
like Secretary Pompeo, like Chief of Staff uh, Mick Mulvaney, like multiple other members of the administration, I don't want them to come forward to testify. And so we're going to have to use our common sense to derive conclusions about what that means. Uh, what, what does our common sense tell us when you have all these other people who are coming forward and testifying about the misconduct of the president, and then the president trying to block everybody else from coming forward to testify in his administration? And let me just point out for the record, um, we've requested several documents and testimony from members of this administration. Uh, and what has the president and his administration done in response? Nothing. It just, I think it's important for people to understand, just for the record, requests for documents from the State Department, ignored. Requests for documents from the Department of Defense, ignored. Requests for documents from the Vice President, ignored. Requests for documents from Giuliani Associate Lev Parnas, ignored. Requests from documents from Giuliani Associate Igor Fruman, ignored. Requests from documents from the White House, ignored. Requests from documents from Rudy Giuliani, the President's lawyer, ignored. Requests from testimony of uh, former National Security Advisor John Bolton, ignored. Requests from the testimony of White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, ignored. And you know, here's a list of all the requests that have been made. The, the red marks are basically to demonstrate noncompliance, that they have been ignored. Um, I think this is what you call obstruction, plain and simple. Uh, and in fact, the only people that have complied with our requests have been patriotic public servants, many of them defying instructions uh, that they not comply. Um, and um, I mean, I, I guess I just ask, you know, what presumptions should we make when the president, when the president prevents witness from, witnesses from complying with congressional subpoenas? Well, let's use our common sense. Um, people who have exculpatory evidence, which is just a fancy way of saying evidence that shows their innocence, want the court to see the evidence. People who have evidence that demonstrates their innocence would bring that to Congress. People who have evidence which they think may be inculpatory, people who have evidence which may lead people to believe in their guilt, will try to keep it away. But you just make a really profoundly important point, Mr. Chairman, which link Articles 1 and Article 2 of the impeachment articles. Do we want to set a president that people, that US citizens can become president of the United States by inviting foreign powers to get involved in our election, then once they're in, if Congress decides that their conduct is impeachable and involves high crimes and misdemeanors, they can then pull a curtain down over the executive branch and not allow any investigation, not allow subpoenas to be honored, and so on. That is a very dangerous prospect that would have terrified and horrified and shocked the framers of our Constitution. Thank you. And I, you, you want to, do you have these? Are we, are, okay. I, I'm, I, well, I'm about to, I'm about to yield to my, uh, to the, uh, my ranking member, who I'm sure has lots and lots of questions. But I, I do, I do want to take a moment. I think it's important um, that uh, we remember this. I want to remind everybody why we're here today. The president abused the power of his office for his own personal gain and obstructed a congressional investigation to look into that conduct. How did he do that? He withheld aid for a country that was under siege by Russia to leverage help for his political campaign. President Trump's abuse of power has endangered our free elections and national security and remains an ongoing threat to them both. He showed us a pattern of inviting foreign interference uh, in our elections and, is, and trying to cover it up twice. And he's threatened to do it again. Uh, with the 2020 elections fast appro approaching, we must act with a sense of urgency to protect our democracy and defend our Constitution. You know, our, 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 on our first day as members of Congress, we took an oath to support and defend 
the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Uh, I did not swear allegiance to a political party. I swore allegiance to the Constitution. And I hope all my colleagues will do the same. Uh, with that, I would yield to the ranking member, Mr. Cole, for any questions he may have. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. And you're right, I do have a lot of questions, and I appreciate your forbearance because it's a I'm, I'm very liberal. <laughs> yes, you Especially are. And uh, in this sense, in the finest sense yeah. of the word. So I, I express my appreciation for that ahead of time as we've discussed. And uh, to my friend, Mr. Raskin, um, a number of my questions have been crafted or were originally crafted for Chairman Nadler. Uh, you may or may not be able to answer those directly. We certainly understand why he's not here, and we, as the Chairman said, we sympathize with him in the difficult time, but we think they're still important for the record. But I, appreciate I just wanted, wanted to sort of highlight that for you. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I asked unanimous <laughs> consent to enter into the record a document entitled, quote, How We Resist Trump, unquote, authored by Congressman Jerry Nadler and posted uh, uh, on www.jerrynadler.com on November 16th of 2016. Without, without objection. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. In this document, Chairman Nadler wrote, quote, we cannot wait four years to vote Mr. Trump out of office, so we must do everything we can to stop Trump and his extreme agenda now, unquote. Mr. Raskin, on August 8th, Chairman Nadler stated with respect to the Judiciary Committee's hearing, regarding the Mueller report that, quote, uh, this is a formal impeachment proceedings. Uh, but the House, un unquote, but the House did not actually authorize impeachment proceedings until the adoption of HRES 660 on October 31st. So I believe it's important to clarify for the record when formal impeachment proceedings actually started. Is Chairman Nadler correct when he said uh, they started on August 8th, or did they begin when the House authorized them? on October 31st. Okay. Um, forgive me, Ms. Cole, I was not actually prepared to answer that question, but I think that uh, the Judiciary Committee has taken formal positions which we can track about this question. I would just direct you to, uh, again, Article 1, Section 2, Clause 5. The House of Representatives has the sole power of impeachment and can design and structure impeachment as it sees fit. Well, it's... Uh, Mr. Cole, could I just say, not, I outside of, not outside of House rules, they can't. Not without passing a resolution that then gives them power and authority that goes outside of House rules. That's the problem we had with this early on, is they were going outside of House rules. And again, when councils are not, you know, been here forever, they're trying to make this happen. This is what happened this year. They went outside of House rules. So that's, that's the problem I've had with this, and we can discuss that more in depth. Well, I think the spirit uh, behind this suggests that this has been going on for quite some time longer than the formal proceedings. Uh, Ms. Craston, on December 10th, 1998, during the Clinton impeachment proceedings, Chairman Nadler stated uh, in the House Judiciary Committee that, quote, there must never be a narrowly voted impeachment or an impeachment supported by one of our major political parties and opposed by another. Such an impeachment will produce divisiveness and bitterness in politics for years to come and will call into question the very legitimacy of our political institutions. Uh, do you believe that this impeachment, which is supported by only one political party, has produced bitterness in the current political climate? So, well, the, um, again, I'm going to have to allow the Chairman Nadler to speak for his own words. But, I certainly understand. Yeah, I, so, um, look, there, there's been a lot of bitterness and division in our country uh, for several years now preceding um, any impeachment 
proceedings, and it's a sad thing, and I hope that everybody rallies around the Constitution, because it's the Constitution that will get us through this difficult time um, in our history. Let me just say about you know, the, the, the Clinton impeachment, um, so the, the conduct that President Clinton was charged with, which was, um, he hadn't been convicted or prosecuted for perjury, but he was, he was uh, essentially charged with perjuring himself uh, in describing uh, private conduct, a sexual affair. And um, the conduct that we're looking at today um, goes right to the heart of why impeachment is in the Constitution. Impeachment is in the Constitution because of public offenses by political leaders against democracy itself. So I think you cannot compare what President Clinton uh, was impeached for by the House of Representatives, and I hold no brief for his conduct in any way, but I don't think you can compare that to the massive, overwhelming, and unrefuted evidence we have that the President of the United States today has tried to drag a foreign power into our elections to his own political advantage. Wasn't exactly the question I asked, but uh, let me turn to Mr. Collins and see if you agree with Mr. Raskin, if there's anything you would disagree with there, and what's been the impact of this process on the, the domestic politics of the country, since it has been essentially partisan in nature. Look, not trying to, you know, and again, I'll, I'll cut some slack that he was trying to answer for a chairman's own words, and, and, and I get that. But I think there's several things. That's, let's just talk here for just a minute. Let's, let's, let's unpack what has happened here, because the only thing I appreciate really out of the whole last few minutes was the chairman trying to bring it into about impeachment. I agree with him on that point that this is about impeachment. Uh, what I disagree is it's not about abuse of power. It's not everything else. And it would come a lot better from the majority if they have not had a long history, a written record. This is something that you love to see in the law because it's a written record of motive. You've seen it since the day that he was elected. You've seen it in this whole process working out. You saw it last year when my chairman ran for the job because he would be the best for impeachment. What was hanging out last year for impeachment? What became a, a Mueller report that didn't give them everything they wanted. And then we came into a call. This is, this is a pattern. And look, you, I, I've said this to, to my chairman, who I respect. You've got the votes. You just voted. You got the votes. You didn't go explain it to the American people. Talk about, talk about afflicting an election. This is what, what we're looking at. But there are a few things here, though, that is interesting. As I said earlier on, time and clock are terrible masters. And I've heard it so many times from the, from the chairman of this committee, the chairman of my committee, and others. We've got to do this because of the 2020 election. Well, put a candidate up that's worth voting for. How about that? Instead of going after a president who you're having trouble beating because of the things that have happened in our country with unemployment, with the economy going good, and everything else. That's what political uh, primaries are for. Not this. When you look back, and, and I get, still never got an qu answer to my question I had just a few minutes ago about have we now set a standard that if you run for president, you can do anything you want to overseas and not get investigated for it? Not got that question answered. But in response to also the chairman's question about uh, requesting stuff, is the chairman knows, and also my chairman knows because my chairman likes subpoenas. He likes to threaten them anyway. Um, but the Secretary of Defense responded. He said it was open to negotiation for you. The Secretary of State, part of the document dump, uh, was part of that. And the House Judiciary Committee, the dump that we did get from the Intelligence Committee, had OMB records from the Budget Committee in it. I mean, there are issues here that, that I have had problems with all year in this. And, 
you know, if you didn't receive a letter, as we have done in the past when we were in a majority under President Obama and President Obama in Fast and Furious and other times, the thing that amazes me is that it seems like the majority this year all of a sudden discovered that the executive branch and the, and the legislative branch don't play well together in the sandbox. This is not a shock for any of us who've been here under the Obama administration. We saw this happen over and over. I was on oversight my first two years here. My former legislative director is here. She's in the room. We pulled our hair out of this. This was at IRS. We had everything else, and we was constantly being stonewalled and stopped, had to actually issue subpoenas, in which finally the courts did rule, and they'll think this is your problem. The courts ruled many years later that, that Attorney General Holder did violate you know, not giving the information out, and that was actually done. But it was many years later. And again, your time and clock is at calendar is a terrible master, and you're having to do this because you promised it. You promised it. This is, we're carrying through on a promise here. You know, the other thing is we talk about fairness here. That, that my friend said that, oh, this has been completely fair. I, nobody's questioned the fact that our folks got to question the witness. Nobody's questioned that fact. They call, but what about the fact of uh, the majority preventing witnesses under rules from using agency counsel, even under the auspices of, a, of an impeachment investigation? How about cutting off Republican questions and refusing to allow uh, the third branch to even rule on claims of privilege when one was actually done, you actually withdrew from the, the lawsuit. So again, it's not a matter of time here. It, it, it's not a matter of fact. Uh, again, when we go back to it, I, I can't not repeat this over and over again because it comes up with Mr. Rassi, it's come up with the chairman, it'll come up again many other times. Put pressure on a world leader. I, I felt, this pressure is, is amazing to me because the guy who was supposed to be pressured denied it ever happened. On multiple occasions, one of his own members of cabinet said, we never talked about conditionality. Yarmouk said, we never talked about conditionality of aid. The only times that they talk about this outside of presumption and hearsay, presumption and hearsay, their main witness, Sondland, said it was presumption. Oh, that's what I presume. Because when he actually asked the president straight up, what do you want? He said, I want nothing. I just want him to do what he, what he promised and he ran on. That's all he did. So it's presumption and hearsay. And granted, this is not a court of law, because believe me, this would have been over a long time ago. We wouldn't have gotten to this place. The rules have allowed it to get to this place because majority rules in this, in this place. But here's the problem. The pressure issue is sad because, again, to continue this line of thought after the president of the Ukraine has came out and denied it and denied it and denied it and denied it, you're either calling him a pathological liar, a world leader, or you're calling him, as was actually, he was actually called in our committee last week, a battered wife. He was actually called that compared to a battered wife. How low have we sunk? This is the problem because at the end of the day, and we can go into the process files, we can go into everything else, but you know something, I, I made, I don't say it's a mistake, but I took my own chairman at his word when I read about his comments from 20 years ago when he said the Judiciary Committee should never take a report from a third party and actually not try to investigate it itself. Otherwise, we become a rubber stamp. Congratulations. Our Judiciary Committee became a rubber stamp. I hope we recover, because that's all we're doing right now, is just rubber stamping what Adam Schiff did under his own rules, under his own time frame, under his own ways. Again, a man who has also been out for this president since day one and would not come and testify. That's the most amazing, shocking thing to me in this whole process. But when you understand where we're at here, I can understand why Mr. Raskin, who is eloquent in his discussion of Constitution and why we have an impeachment, let's just cut to the fact. You don't like the guy. You don't like the conversation. You don't like how he does business. Because at the end of the day, when you start talking about the pressure on a foreign power to do something for you personally, now again, or to, to even get to that remotely, you're having to change words in the transcript. Instead of do us a favor for our country, do us 
You have to change it to me. You have to change the facts. And the last time I checked, this country is not real kind to those who are accused having those who are in power change the rules to fit their game. That's not due process. But I'm going to go back over it because the chairman actually said, here's why we're here. There are four facts that never change. Four facts that will never change. And it goes straight to the heart of anything it said outside of abuse power or anything else. There's no pressure, President Trump, President Zelensky. The transcript shows no conditionality of aid and an investigation. And the only one relied upon over 600 times in the uh, Intelligence Committee report was Mr. Sondland, who after he got past his perfect uh, opening statement, when questioned, said, well, that's what I presumed it to be. And then when actually talked to the President of the United States, he was told, no, all I want him is to do his job, nothing else. And then when he actually said, I had a conversation with Mr. Yarmouk, Mr. Yarmouk said there was nothing discussed of conditionality. So how do you put this much faith in Mr. Sondland when he has conditionally told stories that change? And all of the rest were hearsay. All of the rest were actually going off of other things. And even Colonel Vindman, who, is, who I respect as a, as a soldier, actually said when the question was asked, is it okay to have this call, said, yes, it's okay for a president can do that to ask for a political investigation because it happens. And he even said that. So the question comes back. The Ukrainians were not even aware their aid was withheld. And the Ukrainians didn't open an investigation to get the money. Let me ask you, is this uh, the first partisan impeachment inquiry in the nation's history? Yes. Has the president ever been impeached without votes from a minority party before? Um, I think there was, uh, there was some discussion about that with the Johnson impeachment from many years ago, but that was also when the Congress itself set him up with a law. So I think you have to say that was an impeachment. This is a, in a, in a modern day era, this is a partisan impeachment. In March of this year, Speaker Pelosi said impeachment must be, quote, compelling and overwhelmingly bipartisan. Only Democrats voted to authorize the impeachment inquiry. There's bipartisan opposition to the inquiry, and it appears there'll be bipartisan opposition to the articles. Uh, Ranking Member Collins, given uh, all of that, do you believe the upcoming vote on HRS uh, 755 comports with the standards set by the Speaker herself? No, it comes nowhere close. Is your belief that the meeting an arbitrary deadline is more important to the Democratic majority than building a viable case uh, if, in fact, there is cause for impeachment? Their own words convict them of that. The uh, premise uh, of these articles of impeachment rests on a pause placed on Ukrainian security assistance. A pause, by the way, of less than two months, 55 days, I believe. Democrats have spun creative narratives as to the meaning and the motive of this pause, but offered no factual evidence. Did Ukraine ever initiate investigations into the Bidens? No. Uh, was the aid ultimately released? Yes. Do you believe the taxpayer dollars of the American people were well served by the pause? They were. In fact, the president himself, not policymakers, not uh, administrative officials in different offices are not the ones who have final authority to decide if, if that is going to be. That's the president's call. It's the president's decision. And he made a call. Is it unusual for aid to be paused on by chief executive? No. Uh, did the Democratic majority subpoena all core witnesses with firsthand evidence on any potential quid pro quo with the Ukrainian controversy? No. Has anyone in the Trump administration been charged with or convicted of a crime under the current allegations related to the Ukraine? No. Now, let me continue. It's uh, my understanding that the minority properly exercised its right under Clause 2J1 of Rule uh, 11 
to demand a minority hearing. Is that the case? That is correct. What day did you ask for that hearing? We asked for it on the first day of our when we convened in the Judiciary Committee. I believe that was Mr. December 4th. I don't remember the dates in front of me. I have December it 4th. right in front of Good. me, so I'll uh, be happy to provide that. Uh, has that hearing been scheduled? No, it was summarily dismissed with a long letter, which uh, was told that, in essence, that it was dilatory. I've never seen a, a minority hearing called dilatory. Uh, on the very first day the request could have been made. Mr. Raskin, are you familiar with the following statement? The minority is entitled to one additional day of related hearings at which to call their own witnesses if a majority of the minority members make their demand before the committee's hearing is gaveled closed. I believe I think uh, Mr. Collins invoked that at our hearing. So you are familiar with yeah, that? Yeah, I'm just familiar from that. I actually, I wasn't aware of it before that. Uh, statements posted on the Rules Majority website in a document entitled, quote, House Rules Which Govern the Committee Hearing Process, unquote. Uh, based on review of the hearing video, the minority properly presented their request to Chairman Nadler before the original hearing uh, concluded. Uh, are you familiar with a memo written by former, uh, Mr. Raskin, I'm sorry, I should make that clear by former Rules Committee Chairman David Dreyer regarding the application of the House rule governing uh, minority hearing days? No. Okay. Uh, Chairman McGovern, I asked unanimous consent that this memo be made part of the record uh, and will note that the memo states in part that a point of order may lie against the reported measure in which the minority's demand for a hearing was improperly rejected. Without objection, and I'll ask unanimous consent if I can, to also insert in the record uh, our response to your letter, and we can talk about that after your question. It's yes, certainly appropriate. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, during the markup of HRS 755, Chairman Nadler overruled the ranking member's point of order against consideration of the resolution and interpreting that the rule requires that the minority hearing day occur prior to the consideration of the relevant measure or matter uh, would permit the minority to improperly de delay Proceedings. Were you trying to improperly delay proceedings, Mr. Collins? No, I was actually at one point in these uh, hearings actually have a proper following of rules. So, again, this, you made this request the very first day of hearing. Is that correct? We did. Okay, the hearing at which the demand was uh, properly made was entitled in part, quote, the impeachment inquiry of Donald J. Trump, unquote. My colleagues on the other side of the aisle have offered a number of reasons why Chairman Nadler's refusal to schedule the minority hearings appropriate. I'd like to take a moment to respond to those. My colleagues claim that the legislative history of the rules suggests that it was designed as a backstop to ensure the minority gets at least one witness at a hearing. I do not find this reasoning to be compelling. If that indeed was the purpose of the rule, the plain reading of the text and the reason itself would say otherwise. While traditionally it's been used as a negotiating point between the majority and minority regarding the number of witnesses, the mere fact that the minority has a witness at a hearing does not mean that there's an implicit waiver of the right to demand a minority day hearing. Uh, there are times in which the minority waives the right to a majority day hearing. For example, our discussions regarding Med Medicare for All hearing, we waived that right uh, to a minority day hearing in order to secure two more witnesses. Um, Mr. Collins, at any time, did you waive your rights under Clause 2J1 of Rule 11? No, I did not. And I believe that's why we're here today, actually. Yeah. Did you request a second witness day, and did they provide that second witness, uh, or, or second witness, excuse me, 
And did they provide that second witness in exchange for waiving your rights for a minority day hearing? No, it's not even discussed. Okay. My colleagues on the other side of the aisle have previously quoted Joint Committee on Organization of Congress uh, 1966 recommendations, which stated that a minimum safeguard be established for, quote, those infrequent incidents when a witness representing the minority position are not allotted time. Perhaps the 1966 majority was more willing to provide witnesses to the minority. However, that's not the case today. Witness uh, was allotted time in this case, uh, but not witnesses. In other words, we didn't get anything in exchange for our right not being exercised. And while this may uh, have been one reason for the adoption of the minority hearing day provision, it doesn't render meaningless the plain reading of the text. So uh, we spent a lot of time on this, but we think it's uh, very important. We simply weren't given something that uh, we think by, you know, by right we should have had. And, uh, would actually subject this to a point of order. My colleagues also claim that Chairman Nadler is not required to schedule the minority hearing day before the matter is reported out of committee. you got to be kidding. In other words, uh, we cannot agree that the House intended that the right for the minority hearing day can be fulfilled by scheduling a hearing on a measure after the measures voted out of the full committee. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. So, Mr. Collins, with the presumed passage of these articles of impeachment, isn't the minority hearing day now irrelevant? I believe it is, and I believe that's the concern that many of us have who institutionally love this place. Okay, Mr. Raskin, uh, even if Chairman Nadler didn't believe the House rules required him to schedule the minority hearing a day prior to marking up the articles of impeachment, as a member of both Judiciary Committee and Rules Committee, wouldn't you agree that it would have been better for the institution and the American people? Not to prevent all this disagreement, partisan rancor, just to schedule the hearing. It's just one day. Thank you, Mr. Cole. Um, again, I just learned of it the, the other day when Mr. Collins raised it, and I, I looked at the rule, and the rule does say that the chair of the committee is not required to schedule the minority hearing as a condition precedent to the continuing course of legislative action. Um, <coughs> and I, I, having been in the minority for my first term here, I, I feel your exasperation about that, that it might not happen before uh, the bill passes. And if we want to make a change to that rule, I think that's absolutely something that we should talk about for future Congresses. Well, I, uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate the sentiment behind it because I know it's sincere. Um, again, I can go on and on on this, uh, but we do believe, Mr. Chairman, it's a violation of the spirit. And we appreciate your letter very much, which is very respectful. We tried to make ours respectful when we made the request. It but was. To us, the, the facts are clear. Chairman Nadler ignored a right of the, the minority in committee. It's being ignored by the Democratic majority now, and by doing so, it fundamentally alters the tools available for the minority and all future minorities. So I do hope the Rules Committee uh, will correct this misguided decision, refrain from waiving all points of order against the bill, and at the very least have the matter debated on the House floor. Mr. Raskin, after the adoption of HRS 660 and before the Judiciary Committee's first hearing pursuant to that resolution, Ranking Member Collins wrote seven letters to Chairman Nadler on the subject of the committee's consideration of impeachment. On November 12th, he wrote Chairman Nadler regarding the manner in which the Intelligence Committee conducted their investigation. On November 14th, he wrote Chairman Nadler demanding that the same transparency and fairness that existed in prior impeachment required inquiries be prioritized uh, in the current inquiry. 
On November 18th, he wrote Chairman Nadler regarding the credibility of a particular witness and Chairman Schiff's uh, coordination with certain witnesses to conceal basic and relevant facts. On November 21st, he wrote Chairman Nadler asking uh, that he obtain <coughs> all documents and information from Chairman Schiff pursuant to House Resolution 660 and its accompanying procedures. On November 30th, the persistent Mr. Collins wrote Chairman Nadler asking for an expanded panel and a balanced composition of academic uh, witnesses to opine on the subject matter at issue during the December 4th hearing. On December 2nd, he wrote Chairman Nadler asking for clarity on how he plans to conduct the impeachment inquiry, referencing five previous letters he had sent uh, to questions that were never answered. And on December 3rd, he wrote Chairman Nadler reminding him of his recent letters requesting the Judiciary Committee provide the President uh, due process with the Intelligence Committee, and Chairman uh, Schiff did not. Uh, it's my understanding that Chairman Nadler never provided a response to any of these letters. To your knowledge, does Chairman Nadler generally not respond to letters from ranking minority members? Um, no, and I, I will concede that Mr. Collins, like um, the aforementioned John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, is a prolific letter writer. Uh, I, I don't know whether or not they engaged in conversation to follow up on any of those, but of course, you know, we're all together on a daily basis pretty much. Um, so I, I just I can't speak for the chairman. Okay, well, I just want to note for the record, when we sent a letter to my uh, chairman, he did respond, and uh, we appreciate that very Mr. much. Mr. Cole? Uh, yeah, I'm turning to you yeah. next. Go Thank right you. Ahead. Oh, yeah, it's regular in my committee. We don't get a lot of answers. And this was very true. We got one answer on our witness list. That was it. The other one was a discussion that I had when I asked for another witness, and it turned into an interesting conversation on, were you asking for three to two? Or it was asking for ratios, and all I was asking for was another witness. And told me it was too late and that he could add it. You know, it was just, it, that's the only reason I got. I appreciate the chairman's under a lot of pressure. That time and calendar do, do kill you. I, I, I do, too. And I recognize that. And that's true of all of us. But, you know, this committee does, in, in a sense, have a special responsibility to make sure the other committees, uh, you know, operate uh, according to our rules and, and just common courtesy. Uh, Mr. Collins, uh, articles of impeachment are based on a report written by the Chairman Schiff and transmitted to the Judiciary Committee, correct? That's correct. Uh, did uh, that impeachment report rely on he uh, hearsay to support their insertions? Yes. What explanations Chairman Schiff provide when asked why hearsay rather than firsthand testimony evidence was uh, incorrectly presented as evidence? Well, besides his own discussion of making up the phone call to start with, but also he's not really provided one because he didn't come testify in my committee. Well, did uh, you ask Chairman Nadler to invite Chairman Schiff to come testify? I did. Um, just to be clear, you were asked to vote on articles of impeachment against our Commander-in-Chief based on a report full of unsubstantiated allegations and hearsay, and you were not permitted to ask the author of the report any questions? That is correct. All I got was a, st a staff member. I'd like to note for the record, Mr. Chairman, that Chairman Schiff refused to discuss the report with the minority, yet he was uh, more than willing to appear on Fox News Sunday just two days ago. Uh, it's unfortunately abundantly clear the Schiff reports made uh, for television documents rather than the result of a transparent, thorough, bipartisan investigation. Well, also worth noting for the record, and I'll ask you this, Mr. Collins, was the president represented, you know, this is a really odd thing for us because generally the Judiciary Committee is the main committee of impeachment. That's historically been the case. That's clearly not the case yeah. here. 
the, no. the Committee on Intelligence is the main committee yes. for impeachment. The president uh, have any counsel there? Uh, no. And some, somewhere along the line, we lost our right to be the impeachment, you know, to work on impeachment. We got it at the end to finish it, but we, well, we lost I, it. I, you know, there's a difference between window dressing and substance. I mean, two or three hearings yeah. at the end where you don't even question the author of the report on or you're not allowed to question uh, the author of the report on which impeachment is based. The president never had representation there. In the past, we always had representation. You were at judiciary. Yep. The president was there. He could ask questions. He could, yep. But the main place where all these things come out of, the president was specifically excluded, and you were not in, the, right. in what's supposed to be the main committee on judiciary. You were not allowed to ask the author of the principal report any question. Mr. Cole, you've just presented in a, in a short summation, which I've always admired by you, the, the crux of this whole problem. By the time it got to the Judiciary Committee, this was a done deal. The train was on the front, not even on the track. The train was past the station. They just had to run to catch up to it. It was already decided what they wanted to do. And so here it is, and I've heard this argument, and you can dress this up when to dress it anyway, but I think when we go to the institutional integrity problem that we have here, when you, get, when you do whatever you think of HRS 660, the only place it truly provided the opportunity for fairness for the President and the administration was in the Judiciary Committee. Because at that point in time, they would have been able to uh, you know, ask for witnesses, by the way, which they were turned down. They were, you know, all these things that they were, but they were never opportunity. There's no way, and I don't care how much the majority produces this up, there's no way you can call calling four law school professors, two staff members, and, and that's the only hearings you have, to provide any opportunity for the president to question and get anything out of them. But I have heard from my majority colleagues, which I, as a former defense attorney I think is pretty funny, well, if he's innocent, just tell him to come prove it. When is that ever part of what we should be doing here? Really? I don't think any of my civil libertarians in the Democratic aisle, they ought to be just laying awake at night saying, how can I be associated with this? Because no matter what you think, there's a way to do this fairly, and they can still get their results. Because, by the way, they still outnumber us, and they've been trying to do this for three years. Mr. Raskins, uh, did you have any conversation with Chairman Schiff about the contents of the report? I'm certain I have along the way, yes. Uh, really? Because nobody on our side evidently had any conversations. Uh, to your knowledge, did Chairman Nadler have any conversation with Chairman Schiff about the contents of the report? Oh, I'm sorry. When you say the contents of the report, you mean the substance of what's in the report? Yeah. Well, I think this None is... None of our people have had that opportunity. Well, I, think, I think as a committee, we've been talking about the substance of it for a long time now. But no, I, I had not... I mean... Well, I, we've I was, been talking about the substance of the report. We didn't have yeah. any opportunity to question the person who actually authored the report. Oh, I, I see what you mean. Okay. And, uh, Either formally or informally, to my knowledge. Well, the um, uh, again, the, the, the counsel for the uh, Intelligence Committee came over uh, to discuss all of the factual findings that were in the Intelligence Committee's report of it's his not, work. He's not the principal author of the report. He's the counsel for the committee, the chairman's principal author. Okay. And, uh, and, and by the way, a fact witness as well in many yeah. ways. Uh, and so, well, if, if I could respond to this general line of, of attack, the House Resolution 660 had a number of significant procedural protections for the president, even on the House side. And as you know, the role of the House is to act as the grand jury and the prosecutor, and the actual trial takes place over in the Senate. But still, we had very significant procedural protections, including we invited the president and his counsel to attend all hearings. 
We provided the President's counsel the opportunity to cross-examine witnesses and object to the admissibility of testimony. And we provided the President's counsel the opportunity to make presentations of evidence before the full Judiciary Committee, including the chance to call witnesses. Now, the President chose not to avail himself of any of those opportunities. So it, it's, it, it reminds me of, you know, the president blockading all these witnesses and saying you don't have enough people with direct first-hand well, evidence. To, of what to, I did. First of all, did you, were those rights provided only in Judiciary Committee? Because you're not the principal committee of impeachment here. That's just the reality. But, but you're, you're sort of the final stop. So did the president get those rights in the Judiciary Excuse me, in the Intelligence Committee? I, I believe not. I'd have to go back and check. But I can assure you not. Well, but then let me let me explain. Well, you may not accept this analogy, but here's the analogy that we proceeded on because this is the first modern impeachment where the fact finder was the House of Representatives itself instead of a special counsel or an independent counsel. When the special counsel and independent counsel did their work in the Nixon and Clinton impeachments, all of that was closed door depositions because you don't want the witnesses to be coordinating their testimony and so on. That's how. Uh, prosecutorial investigations take place. The, the House Committee on Intelligence was our fact-finding committee. That's why they performed closed-door depositions, because they wanted to pr avoid witnesses coaching each other and coordinating their testimony. Let me give Mr. Collins an yeah, this is, I mean, we're, we're driving down an interesting hole here, because this is, I also am ranking member of the same committee that said early on when we were, quote, doing impeachment, that if the president saw something he didn't want, he could write us a letter, just like everybody else in the world. This was actually said, that he could write us a letter. That would be the, how he would be taken care of. But let me hit a couple of these things. The White House still has not received all the documents it's supposed to have. I mean, we're, still, we're, we're here doing impeachment right now, and they still haven't received all the documents. I still have not received all the documents from the Intelligence Committee. That's in direct violation of H-660. I'm, I don't know how we get around that. But we can pretend. We can paint pretty faces and say it doesn't happen. It doesn't. But also, here's another thing. The staff member that they sent, Mr. Goldman, would not testify or answer questions on the methodology on how they actually did their investigation. And even in an egregious violation, in their own report where they named members of Congress in their phone records, he would not actually say who ordered that. Was it Chairman Schiff or him? Now, I've always defaulted, as I think you would, Mr. Cole, to the member with the pen, which would be Mr. Schiff. But Mr. Goldman actually sat there and said we would not discuss the methodology of their investigation. This has got to be just the most amazing thought when you come to an impeachment, when you're trying to give due process to the President of the United States, and these are all ignored. And we can pretty it up any way we want to, but it's just not buying. This is not right. And look, you will impeach him. You have the votes. But at the end of the day, is it worth the integrity of the House? I don't think so. Well, during the staff presentation of the evidence, Ranking Member Collins asked how the investigation, you just made this point, was conducted resulted in the Schiff report, never got an answer. Uh, Mr. Raskin, the House Intelligence Committee Democrats released phone records, including four phone calls by Intelligence Committee ranking member Nunes. How did the committee Democrats get those phone records? Uh, I'm going to have to ask staff counsel to pass me a note on that. I will say... But House counsel didn't answer that. Is that correct, Mr. Collins? Uh, no, he wouldn't answer the okay, question. Just, so telling us to go ask somebody who didn't I, answer the question... I, but, but, well... I, I understand that we forcefully represented that there that no member of the House of Representatives and no member of the press was targeted with uh, any investigative resources. Oh, that's uh, Mr. Mr. Cole. Go ahead. Really? I mean, I respect Mr. Raskin, but I'm not even sure I, I, he got that statement out without stumbling over everything. 
You cannot say that you take, I mean, this is, we need to talk about metadata, talking about numbers. At some point, somebody with a ranking member's phone number had to go down through there and look for the ranking member's phone number. They had to go down and look for Mr. Solomon's phone number. This is what they don't want to deal with. This is how bad it is screwed up. And I know they want to gloss over process. I know they want to gloss over how they did their investigation because the time and the calendar are terrible masters. I've repeated it over and over, but this is what we're talking about, and they wouldn't even talk about it. So to say that, there's, you know, that nobody was doing this intentionally is just not being factually accurate. It doesn't happen on its own. I'd ask both of you this question. Who specifically matched the num phone numbers of ranking member Nunes, and what method did they use? But I have no idea. I, I just want, if I could say, Mr. Cole, in certainly, response certainly. to the whole line of questions, the President of the United States was given the opportunity to call any witnesses he want. Any of the 17 witnesses who appeared before the House Intelligence Committee and Oversight and Foreign Affairs could have been called by the President. He would have had the opportunity to cross-examine any of them. But of course, he didn't want to because all of them essentially told different pieces of the exact same story, which is the President ex executed this shakedown of President Zelensky to come and get involved in our campaign at the expense of former Vice President Biden. Uh, Lena, that just doesn't hold water when you look at our, again, I can't say this enough. It goes back to our calendar and a clock. How is it possible when I talked to the chairman himself, sent him letters asking, you know, when we were going to get witnesses, when he didn't even build the witness day in for ourselves? He didn't even build in the calendar a time to accept one of our witnesses, much less the White House witnesses. So don't tell me that you could have accepted, he would have sent witnesses and we'd have accepted it. It was never on the calendar. Let me ask you this, because these numbers didn't particularly need, who specifically ordered the inclusion of phone, these phone records in the Schiff report? Mr. Uh, ranking Member, I'm afraid I can't answer these questions. I just don't know. Let's see. Well, undoubtedly, it was the Intelligence Committee carrying out what seemed to be a political vendetta against another member of Congress. Either of you think it's proper to have the names of individuals swept up in call logs who are not the target of uh, criminal investigation, have their names and numbers? No, it is nothing but a political drive-by, and I brought that out. They could have done it several different ways. They could have said member one. It could have been person one. They could have done it any other way, but they chose to actually use the names. This was a political hit job give you an opportunity to respond, Mr. Askin. Do you think it was appropriate for those numbers and names to have been released? Um, again, they were not I the targets of the investigations. They were just swept up. In a yeah, I, I was not involved in that part of it, and so forgive me again speaking. No, I, again, I understand. And, uh, Will the gentleman yield for a minute? We did have testimony on this. No, I'm not going to yield my time. Okay. I mean, there was You'll testimony. You'll have your time shortly. Yeah. Ms. Cole, the testimony was, I'm not going to tell you. Okay. Uh, how many times, Mr. Collins, the Schiff report or hearsay statements uh, use this evidence? Hundreds. Well, actually only 54. It may seem you take, When you take off one person talking off another person off another person, yeah. it goes up. How many times in the Schiff report are news reports the only evidence supporting factual assertions? I'm sorry, repeat the question. I, was, okay. I had something How many times in the Schiff report or news reports the only evidence supporting factual assertions? It would have been the main factual assertion was Mr. Uh, Sondland, one. About 16 different times. Uh, Mr. Raskin, it's my understanding Chairman Schiff did not transmit the evidence collected during his committee's investigation to the Judiciary Committee until Friday, December 6th. Is, does that comport with your memory? That is correct. Okay. So Judiciary Committee majority um, 
did it have access to any evidence beyond the actual report from the Intelligence Committee until the weekend before the Judiciary Committee actually considered articles of impeachment? Well, um, I don't remember exactly when all of the deposition statements were released publicly. I think some of them had been released publicly before that time. Um, but we could go back and check the exact chronology. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and there are certain members of the Judiciary Committee who are also members of other Certainly understand. Certainly, you're, uh, it, it's my understanding the chairmanship did not transmit all the material collected by the Intelligence Committee to the Judiciary Committee. Is that the case? It is still true to this day. So would you not agree, and I'd ask this to both of you, that the House Judiciary Committee should have had the time and opportunity to review all that material collected by the Intelligence Committee? Did you both have that time and opportunity? We did not. It's a direct violation of House, Rule 6, House Resolution 660. <laughs> The, Mr. Cole, all I can tell you is the the vast amount of what we ended up getting was what was being uh, produced, released publicly along the way. I know the Intelligence Committee um, made the commitment to release those depositions, uh, those deposition statements publicly. And, I, and so I, I've considered it a very fair and transparent process. I, did, I don't think I got to see a single thing through the Judiciary Committee that I was not just seeing come out and being released by the Intelligence Committee. In any event, all of it is in the final report. It's there for all of America to see, um, and I don't want us to lose sight of the, the big picture. We of really don't know if it's all there in the don't. final report. From, if you haven't seen them yourself. No, we do it. not know. That, that's a statement that is assuming something, you know, facts not in evidence. That, that, we don't know what we, you know, this is the old classic case of evidence being given from a prosecutor to a, an, you know, in, in a trial. We don't know what we've not seen. We do know what we, we know one, a few things we know have not been transferred, but we'd also have heard of other things that's not been transferred. And it's not, can't be in the report if it's not been transferred, because then we could at least say it was in the report. Let me move on to the articles themselves, because in my view, we've established the Intelligence Committee process was substantially flawed and procedurally defective. That's my view, I underline. The Judiciary Committee uh, failed to create an evidentiary record sufficient to justify moving forward on, uh, on articles, but you basically relied on the uh, Intelligence uh, Committee, again, where the President was unrepresented. That violated rules of the House, in my view, and the entire circus has been politically motivated uh, from the very beginning. On the obstruction of Congress charge, it's uncommon for the executive, or excuse me, is it uncommon for the, and I ask this to both of you, uncommon for the executive branch to push back against requests for information from Congress? Well, um, no, it is not uncommon for the executive branch to push back on the production of this or that document or the timing of a particular visit. What was absolutely breathtaking in its unprecedented and radical nature was this president's determination to shut down all discovery. They did not produce a single document to us, Mr. Call, uh, that was subpoenaed uh, in this process. And the president essentially ordered everyone in the executive branch not to cooperate with us. Uh, yes. Excuse me, I don't want to cut so, you off. But I think that's a dramatic uh, escalation in kind and in degree over anything that's ever been seen before. And that includes Richard Nixon, uh, who I think <coughs> tried to block seven or eight particular requests, like the Watergate tapes. And that in itself became part of the case against him for abuse of power. But, you know, President Trump makes Richard Nixon look like a little leaguer when it comes to obstruction. Uh, Mr. Collins, same thing. Do you think it's unusual for an administration to push back against congressional subpoenas? And no, it's common. Um, 
if it's pretty common, do you believe it's a high crime or misdemeanor to assert privileges in response to congressional requests for subpoenas? Not it is. And again, I want to go back and just give a, a little bit of history since we've had history lessons here from Ms. Rathen. Even in our own committee this year, what's been really interesting is, is uh, it's, it's been a total, you know, just walk toward impeachment the whole time. But what was interesting in our committee is we would send subpoenas or we would, you know, we, again, we sent out letters and stuff and we never followed up on. But also one of the interesting things about our committee was is we never engaged for the most part with the agencies for documents. But what I thought was really interesting was Mr. Schiff in the Intelligence Committee, while we were still struggling during Mueller and some other times, Mr. Schiff actually negotiated with the Department of Justice and actually got documents released that our committee couldn't. The House Foreign Affairs Committee, Elliot Engel, who is one of the quieter chairmen, but one of the more effective in my personal opinion from across the aisle, had engaged all year with the administration on ways to get documents. It's a matter of how you go about it. And to say that this is just unheard of is just not right. Well, and, and again, I'd ask this to both of you, and I think this gets to the point you're making. There's a normal accommodations process for resolving inter-branch disputes between the House and the executive branch. Is that not correct? Yes. Uh, okay, and that process really hasn't occurred here, I think, Mr. Collins. That's what you're telling me. I presume it, it doesn't fit neatly into the, the uh, you know, speaker's impeachment and Christmas timeline, to borrow your, uh, your uh, way of looking at it. I mean, we've not gone to court. No, they have These things, uh, we're not really engaged. This is a normal give and take where actually both sides tend to avoid, quote, you know, an exchange where they might go to court and lose something. Right. But all that's been set aside. We haven't had any process like that, have we? No. Ms. Cole, I'll even point out something that I disagree with, Mr. McGann. We, I mean, there's been a court case in which we've lost in which Mr. McGann and is still being appealed. But it does show you the process is working. It just don't work as fast as they want it to work. And I think that's where we have to go back to. Um, in this whole process. So, no, and in fact, even the one uh, that they had that was actually uh, one of the members of the administration contested, they just withdrew their uh, subpoena and withdrew them from the, from the uh, lawsuit because they just didn't want to deal with it. I know Mr. Raskin would have a different view, and if he wants to respond, I would, but I'm going to ask you specifically, Mr. Collins, is there any actual evidence that the pause on the Ukrainian assistance was for the president's uh, improper personal political benefit, or could he have had other objectives? That's directed to you, Mr. Collins. I'm sorry. Uh, I apologize. And it's all right. I'm throwing a lot of questions at you. Is there any actual evidence that the pause on the Ukrainian assistance was for the president's improper personal political benefit, or might he have had other reasons for withholding aid? He had plenty of other reasons. And I think that the part of it is the law itself, which says that, you know, even though it was certified, it was the president's call to make sure that there was no corruption in where aid is given. There was other countries during that time in which aid was held. I think from an appropriator standpoint, Mr. Cole, you'll also understand this aid was not even scheduled to go out. It had to be done by September 30th. It actually went out early, if you look at it from that time frame. Um, so there were other reasons. There was a recent poll, just to show you, and again, we talked about this a little bit from our side, the corruption in the Ukraine was so prevalent. Six, a recent poll said 68% of normal, just everyday Ukrainians had said that they had bribed a public official in the past year. There was reasons for this uh, to be discussed and reasons to go at it. But also I want to point out one last thing on this other issue. Fast and Furious, the infamous uh, issue with the Obama administration, it was seven months from first subpoena to first documents. Seven months. That doesn't fit the uh, timeline here. That doesn't fit the timeline here. Mr. So that this is an essential point um, that you raise right now. And I think that there is not any credible evidence from any of the witnesses or anything in the record to suggest 
that the president was actually trying to ferret out corruption as opposed to impose a corrupt scheme on the president of Ukraine. Let's start with this. In 2017 and 2018, the president could have raised corruption in withholding military and security assistance to Ukraine and never did. Then in 2019, he did. What changed? Well, Joe Biden was running for president and the presidential campaign was much on his mind. The president uh, removed Ambassador Yovanovitch and we learned today from, uh, from Mr. Giuliani that he was involved with the campaign by Parnas and Fruman to smear uh, Ambassador Yovanovitch to say there was something wrong with her. In fact, when she was, according to all the testimony we had and all the public information we have, she was one of the leading anti-corruption ambassadors that the United States has on earth. And they sabotaged her, they undercut her, they subjected her to an unprecedented smear campaign that led several of the other witnesses to protest that the State Department was not standing by its own ambassador. And they got rid of her, as uh, Mr. Giuliani said in today's paper, because she was getting in the way of the investigations they wanted. And what investigations were those? Those into Biden, those into the 2016 um, conspiracy theory. So that's pretty clear. It had nothing to do with corruption. Moreover, if you go to the July 25th telephone call, President Trump never raised the word corruption once. But he did talk about Joe Biden three times. So we didn't hear corruption, corruption, corruption. We heard Biden, Biden, Biden. That was the favor that we were looking for, right? He wanted the president of Ukraine to come over and say he was investigating the Bidens. Look, that's unrefuted and uncontradicted in the record. I don't, we should, I don't think we should be trying to pull the wool over America's eyes about this. Let's not play make-believe. If we want to say it's okay for the president to do this stuff, then let's just go ahead and say it. But let's not claim that he was involved in some kind of anti-corruption crusade at the time. I think America knows that we can't take that seriously. This president cut anti-corruption funding to Ukraine by 50%. The chairman of his campaign, Paul Manafort, was on the take. He was on the dole for millions of dollars to a former corrupt president in Ukraine. President Zelensky, who was getting shaken down, was the reformer. He was the product of the Revolution of Dignity in 2014, which tried to bring some democracy and tried to bring some fairness and anti-corruption efforts to Ukraine. Giuliani and his gang that can't shoot straight, they went over there because they wanted to take advantage of the situation and go back to the corrupt forces in Ukraine. So this president had one thing in mind, his own reelection and how President Zelensky could help him. And you can see that if you look at the phone conversation that Ambassador Sondland had with the president the day after July 25th. On July 26th, he had this phone conversation that was um, partially overheard by David Holmes um, in the State Department. And he hears him tell the president that Zelensky will do whatever you want. He's going to do the investigations. He loves your ass and so on. And then he gets off the phone and then he tells him what? Uh, that what the president is interested in is the big stuff relating to the president's own political amb ambitions, like the Bidens. He's not interested in uh, the war with Russia. And I would say, obviously, he's not interested in corruption. He was interested in the Bidens, and that was it. Now, e either we think that's an appropriate and proper thing for the president of the United States to be doing, or we think it's wrong. Give, some of us believe it rises to the level of I want to give Mr. Mr. Collins a chance to respond before I do. Uh, President Zelensky, any Ukrainian official ever tell you they felt shaken down? Well, there's lots of evidence in the That's record. That's not what I asked. I said, have you got any no, statement? I've never spoken to him. Okay. And are there any statement on the record? Uh, I don't think so. 
No, their statements on the record. The record ours, we wasn't we wasn't pressured. We wasn't part of anything. I wouldn't be a part of that. Those are the, the statements from Mr. Zelensky. What you know? Well, don't let at this Mr. point. Donald's chance to respond. Yeah, don't, they, come they, back. There yeah. are contemporaneous emails where, uh, and somebody will pass me the exact language, but essentially where uh, Mr. Yermak, who is the the top right hand man to. Uh, the president of Ukraine, says that the president does not want to be treated as a political pawn in domestic American politics. For several weeks, they were doing everything in their power to try to get out from underneath the straitjacket of this scheme that was coming, that was bearing down on them from every different direction. Mr. Collins? Wow, that's a story right there. We're, you know, this is amazing. I am, maybe this is a good way we're doing this because we're having to expand the story to fit our narrative here. And because, it, you know, if you don't, let's don't play make-believe, there's nothing, if they had something in the phone call, it would have been in the articles of impeachment. They don't. Because at the end of the day, there's no direct evidence of what they're trying to spin here, and that was that there was a uh, pressuring or a quid pro quo, or however you want to put it, um, uh, to Mr. Uh, Zelensky. The problem here is, is that Mark Sandy testified under oath that there was a wholesale investigation going into foreign aid this year. So you can go back and quote 2017, 2018, all you want, but this year, because of the problems, he testified that there's a wholesale investigation onto foreign aid everywhere. Trump, but if you don't know, the President Trump actually raised this with Mr. Poroshenko in 2017, and that was testified to by Mr. Volcker and the former ambassador. So when you look at this, there's no direct evidence of, of what was said here, and to try and then come back and put this into a different uh, perspective. And again, going back to Mr. Yarmuk, who Mr. Yarmuk said, there was no connection between, ever discussed between the, the aid and a investigation. And also, if they were trying to get out from under it so hard, I, I guess if we're looking at that, because they never did anything to get the aid. They never did anything to get the aid. If they were that scared, something was wrong. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll try to bring this uh, to conclusion, because I th and I know there'll be a difference of opinion here, so you both, certainly both can respond. Um, Contrary to my claims, uh, or to my friend's claims across the aisle, uh, Mr. Collins, uh, you think the Democratic majority effectively denied the administration a meaningful opportunity to participate in this proceeding? They didn't effectively, they did. Okay, on October 30th, uh, the Rules Committee held our original jurisdiction markup on HRS 660. There were many serious concerns from our side uh, of the dais about the damage this unprecedented process to have the institution. Republican members of the committee were repeatedly assured that, quote, the president has been afforded all kinds of rights before the Judiciary Committee. We've heard that assertion again today, and that this would be an open and transparent process. Uh, despite the fact that we received the text of the resolution a mere 24 hours earlier, did not have a single amendment made in order. Um, Mr. Collins, was the administration provided the opportunity to participate in the Intelligence Committee Proceedings, because in my mind, no. they've basically supplanted the judiciary as the principal committee of impeachment. They were, and they definitely weren't in judiciary. And you, they can, it was put into the record that they should have been. But the problem is, is the actual uh, way it played out in the scheduling in judiciary committee made it nowhere possible that they could even, if all of a sudden they, you know, wanted to, there was no time in the calendar for it. Yeah, so I'll just end with this. I mean, I certainly, have, well, I'll let my friend respond if you need wanted to. Thank you. You're very kind, Mr. Call. Um, the, um, when Lieutenant Colonel Vinman testified, um, he said that this request for a favor was not uh, in any sense uh, a friendly request. It was a demand in the context of the hundreds of millions of dollars that were being held up, the request for the White House meeting, uh, and so on. 
For weeks, the Ukrainians pushed back on the demand of the president and his agents and advised U.S. officials they did not want to be, quote, an instrument in Washington domestic re-election politics. You recall the uh, testimony of Dr. Fiona Hill, uh, who said that this was a domestic political errand that the president's team was on in order to extract this commitment from President Zelensky to come and give this interview. And in fact, they had publicly um, announced, uh, or they were going to publicly announce the investigations in an interview that President Zelensky had scheduled on CNN. But then Ukraine canceled the interview uh, a few days after the president's scheme was publicly exposed and the military aid got released. In other words, when the whole scheme blew up, then President Zelensky felt that he could uh, be free from this obligation to come forward and say well, with, he with was all, investigating the With violence. all due respect, the president was telling uh, United States senators in August that the aid was probably going to be released long before, uh, you know, there was any notion about a whistleblower or anything else. Senator Johnson from Wisconsin has testified to that effect. Well, so, and again, with all due respect, I mean, the last administration for four years didn't provide any military assistance to Ukraine. The idea that 55 days was somehow life and death in this situation, particularly during the period of transition from one government to another, uh, you know, it's just pretty thin gruel to impeach a president of the United States on. Um, Mr. Chairman, you know, with all due respect to my friends here, uh, who I admire uh, both and who I think have, have uh, been very helpful in their testimony and as always straight and forthright. My view, Chairman Schiff ought to be the person answering questions in front of the Rules Committee. Uh, it's his report. I don't blame the President uh, for passing on the opportunity not to go before the judiciary for what was clearly going to be perfunctory and, and provide a, a sort of window dressing of legitimacy to this process. So to claim that uh, he was given meaningful or consistent opportunities, treated anywhere like previous administration. I just don't think holds up when you're denied an opportunity to participate where the principal action's at uh, and then given a last-minute thing. And so, again, I, I just I'm going to yield back my time, Mr. Chairman. I want to thank both of our uh, distinguished members, former and current of the Rules Committee, uh, for coming up here and, and providing us their insight. And, our testimony. It's uh, it's great to work with both of you, and I appreciate your service to your districts, and to the Congress, and to the country. You'll back. So um, I want to thank the gentleman for his uh, questioning. I, I said I'd be liberal with the time. You you, you, you were. You're going to make me into a conservative by the end of this hearing. Um, uh, but let me let me just do a couple of things here. Um, one is I want to ask unanimous consent to, without objection, to insert in the record an October 23rd New York Times article entitled "Ukraine Ukraine knew of aid freeze by early August, undermining Trump defense." Um, I also want to uh, make a, um, a couple of comments about the Minority Day witness issue. Um, I did uh, send a letter to uh, my colleagues on the on the Rules Committee. Uh, we made it part of the record. Uh, Mr. Nadler has confirmed that he would work with the minority to schedule a, their hearing uh, day on constitutional grounds of impeachment, uh, notwithstanding the fact that he already oh, allowed yeah. a minority witness. And we we did a lot of history. We did, looked at the history of of this whole uh, this whole rule, and basically it was designed to ensure that uh, the minority was not shut out of witnesses, uh, that they were not completely shut out of hearings, as had been uh, as has had occurred in the past. Uh, and uh, the minority did get a witness. Uh, I tried not to watch the judiciary proceedings as much as I could, but I did see him. Uh, he was there. 
Um, but I would just say that, um, you know, that this, this notion that somehow th that uh, the minority has this superpower uh, ability to be able to uh, not only uh, name the witnesses, but set the day and to be able to slow down progress on any bill, uh, if that were the case, having been in the minority for eight years, uh, we would have used it to stop most of the agenda that my Republican friends have put forward. So I, 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 I put that, I would, again, just, I will make that letter available to anybody who's interested. Mr. McGovern. Uh, yeah. Mr. Chairman, I do have a question. I was, you made a statement, and I'm not sure if you were, how you were wording it, if it was a paraphrase or not, but I was never promised by Mr. Nadler that he would work with us on a minority hearing day from now to infinity. I mean, he just, he just basically said, no, we're not having it. Well, my, he did my, not. My understanding is that he said that in committee. Maybe I, I'm, I'm wrong, but I, we, we can find well, we, out during the break. Well, we've had a little issue of consultation we, we, lately, yeah, so. we, 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 we will look that up, and, and by the time we get back, we will get you that, get that, get you that answer. Uh, but let, let, me, let me again remind everybody here why we're here today, I mean, because it, it's easy to get, kind of get caught up into the weeds and to talk about process. Um, and well, 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 let me, let me I, I just was handed it. Uh, now there, in the state, so I'm willing to work with the minority to schedule the hearing. I'll, I'll pass that on to the to the gentleman. If you we have consultation issues in our committee, well, and sending that and not talking about it and yeah. taking all of our witnesses out yeah. is not true. Yeah. And to impugn it into letters, fine, but right. it's still not true. Right. Well, that's what he said. Right. Though. Right. So I, you know, I, I will ask that to be part of the record as well. Look, let me let me just remind everybody why we're here. As I said over and over again, the president abused his power of office for his own personal gain and obstructed a congressional investigation to look into that conduct. Um, and we all know how he did it. Uh, he tried to shake down the government of Ukraine to ba get, basically get dirt on his political opponent to help him in the upcoming 2020 election. Uh, and he engaged in a systemic pattern of denying any documents of any cooperation with Congress. Uh, that is obstruction of Congress. And, and Mr. Collins, you, you, you kept on saying something that I, I actually agree with. You talk about how the clock and the calendar uh, is important. You know, from my vantage point uh, and from the way I look at what has happened here, it is important because I believe, as Mr. Raskin stated at the beginning of his testimony, that there is a crime in progress. I mean, we have an election coming up in less than a year. Uh, and the president is openly trying to encourage foreign interference in that election. I mean, that is a big deal. That should shock everybody, not only in this committee, in this chamber, all throughout this country. It is just wrong. It is so wrong. Uh, and so we will continue this hearing. We're, we, just, we just had votes, and we will uh, um, uh, recess uh, uh, and come back at the beginning of the last vote, uh, where we will then turn to Mr. Hastings. The Rules Committee stands in recess.